Welcome to Rogue Bugs, episode 33. A fair bit to get through, and we'll have a special guest join us towards the second half of the show. So stay tuned for that. Pro, welcome. Bogues, what's going on, brother? Anything new? No, nah, nothing's new. Same old, same old, really. Another lockdown here. Again, Groundhog Day. We're in week two of a one-week lockdown and going to be going to week three. So that's always fun. Yeah, it's always... Uh, you always read up on that stuff, man. It's fucking... It's always a shit show, brother. Oh, I've got a bunch of American friends, that, you know, from both political sides, um, left, right, middle, uh, texting me saying, what the fuck is going on in Australia? And I can't answer that question. So, I mean, you know, California and um, a bunch of different states, even nationally there, you guys have so many cases coming through um, and we have, we locked down, we had one state locked down on one case, they locked down for a week one case of the virus so yeah it's, it's just crazy it's funny how different parts of the world handle it you know i'm i mean there's nobody that really has it tackled but like we're going through a lot worse shit than you guys are and you know we're not locked down i mean we are already went through that stuff but like i said there's no perfect way but you know, i read up on your twitter and there's always somebody you retweeting somebody and something and you know the lockdown stuff is crazy what they got you guys going through yeah, it is. It is. And I think, it, you know, the reason why I'm so vocal about it, not to get too political, is because the, the voiceless and the working class, um, people that, you know, the labor force can't work from Zoom Pro. They can't they can't get in their lounge room and do a Zoom meeting to mow someone's lawn or to be a mechanic or – and I grew up in that, in that working class environment. We'd be absolutely screwed if my father's business was running today. So, you know, that's – they're the people I feel sorry for because they've, they've got no voice. No one cares. It's either the – you know, the, the elites have their voice and they're on full pay sipping wines at 10 a.m. And, and being able to, you know, join their Zoom meetings on full pay, much like our politicians. But anyway, we'll get away from the politics. We're going to open up with um, – NBA free agency, so some no-brainers, Luka Doncic and Trey Young, basically identical deals, right? Um, five-year deals, $207 million. I mean, no-brainer, right? We don't need to even get into that too much. No, not really. Like, what, what, the, what the average fan needs to understand with rookie extensions is that you know, it depends. Some Some's going to get the max, the super max like those guys got. Some are not, but... It's almost impossible for a player not to sign an extension with the original team that signed them as long as they didn't get traded in those first four years. They're restricted free agents. That means that they could, like, if another team wanted to sign Luka Doncic, and say Luka Doncic didn't want to sign with the Dallas Mavericks, which is total bullshit because he obviously did. But, like, if he wanted to sign, say, with the Lakers, right? And the Lakers, say the Lakers had the money. Well, the Lakers could offer him the 207. The problem is... Oh, they can't actually because it's not the original team, but they could offer them whatever they want to offer them and the Mavericks could to match it. And then they're stuck into that. You know, they, they sign an offer sheet with a new team and then they've got about two or three days to sign uh, the, the original team as two or three days to match it. And then they're stuck with that contract with the original team. So everybody likes saying, well, Luca's not going to sign it. He might not. It's total bullshit. There hasn't been a player yet. That's that's going to say no to it. Usually what happens is they go two deals with a team and then they'll force their way out of town. If that's if that's the case, going into their third deal or in the in the middle of their second deal. So, nah, no, no surprises here. Yeah, and they'll get the security first, a lot of guys. Even if they know, let's say Luka Doncic thinks, I'm going to give it another couple of years in Dallas. He's still going to sign that four or five year deal and then maybe after year three could be like... Hey man, it's time to move on. So I'll watch that space. But I mean, they're building something, something there. So that'll be interesting to watch. Kawhi, 
Um, now he lost. He left some money on the table because he didn't. I guess he didn't opt into his deal last season. Um, he could have got an extra year, I believe, with his extension if he did that. So he left about ten mil total on the table. But I mean, it's it's kind of um, scrapping at coins when you look at what he's making. But seventeen, one hundred and seventy three million four year deal with a player option in the fourth year. We all love that player option, Kemba. Left some money on the table with OKC. You heard it was what, 18, 20 million, right? Yeah, about 20 million, maybe a little less. But, you know, Sam Presti, is good. he's like I said, he's one of the shrewdest guys in the NBA with dealing with that stuff. And they figured that they would keep him. I would assume they would keep him until, you know, it's time to they'll continue to try to trade him and get something else in value, a pick or, you know, someone else's contract that they've been doing that the last couple of years. And, you know, look, if you want it out early to get to a contender, because you know, they probably wouldn't use them all that much, probably a little bit like the Horford deal previously. And he probably said, you know what? I made enough money. Fuck it. I'm out of here. But you're going to have to leave some money on the table. And I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood to 18 to 20 million bucks. And now, uh, yeah, signing a two-year deal now with the Knicks at 8.7. So, you know, on the grand scheme of things, he's probably lost 15-odd million when you go to year to year. So, that's commendable for him to get out. I'm, I'm sure Presty, they said, we're just going to Al Horford you um, and, and tell you to stay home if you don't take a buyout and your career, you know, you're just going to sit on the bench. So, they use some leverage there, I, I would assume. Schroeder, Dennis Schroeder. So, we got one right. Again, Pro was starting to get on a roll here. It wasn't with the Lakers. I, I mentioned them as a possibility as a team-friendly deal, but a team-friendly <laughs> deal with the Celtics. One year, $5.9 million ouchie for Dennis Schroeder after being offered, as we said last podcast, $84 million for four years, um, four or five, you know, three, four, five months ago. So, that's, I think it'll be good for Boston, but that's a, that's, that's a big loss for Schroeder. Yeah, it is. And, and look, Look, these guys better themselves. They they try to like, you know, they try to put all their eggs in one basket in free agency. You know, everybody's sort of three or four guys that will get overpaid in free agency. He he said, you know what, the hell with it. I'll try to get my twenty twenty five million or whatever he's trying to get. And some sometimes you get you get caught holding the bag on it. And I thought maybe he could have got something, not not maybe what he was looking for, but something in the neighborhood of what the Lakers were giving him. You know, early on. And it didn't happen. And sometimes it's loses in this. And look, he bet on himself. He fucked up. And, you know, there's always that one guy that does it. Look, Nerlens Noel did it with the Mavericks. Supposedly, he left about $80 million. He didn't sign an 80 to, you know, 75 to $85 million deal. And then he didn't get anything. So, he was, I think he was getting like, like mid-level deals or sort of minimum deals, like 2.8 or 3.5. And now I think he just signed a, a you know, like a 6 or $7 million deal. But like, he's he lost out on... A lot of money. And, and there's always one guy. There's always one guy that sort of overvalues himself. Look, we're full of a league of people who overvalue themselves or what they think they're worth. But in the real scheme of things, you know how much value you have when it's in July or August, whenever free agency is year to year. But like when that free agency bell opens up and your phone ain't ringing, you know you don't have that value. And that's – look, it's not, it's not a political thing. It's not an anything thing. It's do you have value for one of these 29 other teams? And he didn't. He had the, you know, the mid-level, the taxpayer mid-level. The Celtics need a point guard desperately. Um, they got Peyton Pritchard, but he's not good enough right now to, to sort of take them to a, a little bit of a higher level if they want to get to. Um, not that Schroeder's Isaiah Thomas from the Pistons or anything, but it's actually a pretty decent get for a 5.8. That was a pretty, pretty good deal by Brad Stevens running the team now. I wonder if this was a, a balls up by Schroeder's agent 
or if it was him um, or a mix of both because, you know, your job as an agent for your list- all the listeners out there is when you get an offer from your team, whether it's you're, you're restricted, whether you're, you get an extension offer mid-season, most agents will have teams on their speed dial already. Um, the way it usually works is, you know, devil's advocate, Schroeder's agent would have called a bunch of teams and maybe someone told him, tell him not to take that deal, we'll give him the max in the off-season. I'm hoping that's the case <laughs> and they just got screwed by a team, which can happen too, rather than them just thinking, oh, no, he's worth more when I've taken that. Um, I hope they did their research. But yeah, you see it go both ways and that's the, you know, the bad part of the business for players sometimes is you're listening to an advisor or an agent, but maybe maybe it was just strictly Schroeder. Maybe he said, I'm worth more than that. Who knows what the real story is, but someone's fucked up massively there. Um, um, because he's now lost eighty, you know, seventy-nine million dollars, seventy-eight, seventy-nine million dollars, which you know he can arguably <laughs> earn back. But there's risks now, and like we said when we mentioned that contract, is you could hurt yourself. Someone could take your legs out by accident. You could get hit by a car. You know, you could hurt yourself wrestling with your kids. You know, who knows? Who knows? You know, there's just so much risk um, of leaving that on the table when it's you know the beauty of the NBA is it's guaranteed. So once you sign it, you know you basically set for life. So I mean, how many people have you been around in the NBA, player wise, that didn't have great people around him giving him great advice. You know, I'd say 80%, I'd say 85 to 90% of the week. More than not. Well, that's a problem. You got the way the NBA player group usually works when they're young is they have they have their fa- their parent their family they have that one rogue uncle that's advising them or the cousin or the guy they grew up with that they trust they have now an, an agent in the fray the family usually saying the agent's just trying to rip you off or the agent doesn't you know he's trying to get money and you know, listen to us and so the players are getting pulled from family to agent to coach to GM and then there's always that entourage of boys the their, their friends from college or high school or they grew up in the neighborhood that they end up living with them because, I mean, most NBA players at a young age are single. They move to a city, so they usually have an entourage of a couple of guys so they can go out and do stuff, not be lonely, which is all fair enough, go out to clubs, party, go to restaurants. Um, and they're usually the guys that are like, hey, man, you're, player, you're, you're way better than player uh, Y. Like, you should be getting more than him, but the organization doesn't see it that way. No one really in the world sees it that way, but it fills a player's head up. And then you see issues like this where guys are turning down big money and pro hit it spot on. It's it's That's three quarters of the league for the most part. The guys that figure it out quickly, you know, usually do pretty well. The guys that don't, they either lose money, leave money on the table, or they end up blowing their money because they've got all these guys on their payroll telling them what they, what they want to hear. So, it's it's pretty messy in that sense, I think. But rounding this off, Udonis Haslam has signed one more year, 19th year. <laughs> In the NBA, two point six million dollar vet min deal. Now, this is this is definitely a culture coaching signing. He's not going to play a vital minute, I don't believe, um, unless they need no. to get get him in there to clothesline somebody. Um, other than that, I think this is, <laughs> from what I heard, Miami is a very tough place to be in. Um, we've spoken about how professional it is, but I've also heard it's it's boot camp like. There's no messing around. It's long practice sessions. They go hard. Um, there's no you know where the line is, and you're not even getting your toe close to it. Put it that way. So I think this one is a direct correlation from the front office and the coaching staff to have someone in the locker room that they can kind of count on to make sure that that culture's, you know, bought into and instilled and, and Udonis is going to have to have those conversations with new guys at times of like, hey, this is this is what we do here. This is what's acceptable and what's not and, and it is what it is. You need to buy in otherwise they're going to get you out of the door. So, I, th- I believe that's his role, bro. I don't, I don't think it's basketball related. Yeah, no. He's their Alonzo Morning. He's their new Alonzo Morning, Jawan Howard. He's the guy that you know, and Alonzo was there longer, I think, than Jawan was, but he's the player that they trust, the locker room that they, you know, people respect those guys in the locker room. And look, you know, it's a funny story with 
you know, with Adonis. So he, he played for a good friend of mine, Frank Martin, who's a head coach of South Carolina in high school. Then he goes to Florida, did really well. Um, came out in the NBA. I believe he was undrafted and had an age, big time agent at the time. Had to go play in France, came back, you know, and then finally made a name for himself. I mean, it, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a smooth ride getting into the NBA. And this guy's a warrior who they love and he'll be with that organization. He'll be a high ranking official in that organization for the rest of his life. I mean, he's, he's that revered in that town, that organization, those guys. That's sort of everything that. You know, Riley and Spolstra and, and, and that organization sort of is around. That's what they're about is definitely going through with, with that, with Adonis. He won't play any meaningful minutes, like you said, unless he needs some, you know, unless there's needs to be a clothesline or needs to send a message, but he's just there for the, you know, for the young guys to understand they can't fuck around. You know, he's, he's going to police that locker room. There aren't many. I don't think there there might be five, if that, in the whole league that that police a locker room these days. You know, you know how it is, it's a fucking circus. And he's one of those guys that could police it, have respect. He'll fight you if you don't. You know, he's a he's a real tough guy. He's a guy that could play in any era of basketball and survive because he's one of the toughest players I've ever been around. And uh yeah, it, it's totally a, a culture deal. He'll just keep going with it. That's it. Um, the only notable Aussie free agents left we spoke about, for me, Dante Exum and Thon Maker. Do you think they get signed pro, either of those guys? Give me the crystal ball on both those guys. First go, Dante Exum. What do, what do you think this season? Do you think it's going to be a camp deal? Do you think it's going to be you know some sort of minimum deal? Yeah, I think you're going to see Thon probably sign closer to training camp, and then he'll sign a non-guaranteed deal. And, and I don't. you'll probably see him sign in the next few weeks. I don't see him maybe the next four to six weeks. I keep forgetting about the, the new time deal, but um, I don't, I don't foresee him on an NBA roster. I don't, I, I think, I think he'll end up being either in the D league or he'll, he'd get cut late. He'll be probably cut last cut in training camp, but I don't think you're going to see him on an NBA roster. I think you'll see him in the D league or you'll, you'll see him sign internationally. I would think that he'll probably try to, to go the year playing in the D league, get a fair shake to get back to the league but I don't really foresee him this year. Dante, I really think that Dante will sign with an NBA team. I think that somebody will probably give him a, a partially guaranteed two-year deal, and um, you'll probably see him sign in the next, you know, next month or so. What do you What do you think, folks? Yeah, I mean, I think Thon can fill a role. There's, there's, you know, I think he's around that 12 to 18 on the roster. Um, so it could be two-way. Mm-hmm. It could be something along those lines. He still is you know, young on paper and has potential shooting the three ball better and um, has length and athleticism to play that five spot now, which is whatever I'm wants. They want a shot blocking five that can shoot three. So he can do that. But I just, just no rhythm in where he's been the last couple of years. Hasn't really, you know, the consistency thing's been an issue for him and, and, and not all blame would be on him neither it's he's been he's bounced <clears> around a fair bit and in and out so he's figuring things out i think teams kind of just have given up on him early um uh, hopefully I, I think the ceiling for this season would be for him to fight through a camp deal so i think he gets a camp deal and then he's just got to prove his worth um in camp and really have a good training camp and and a la matthew delavadova in whatever year that was 2014 or 2013 comes out and and just they're like we just can't 
cut this guy. He's he's earned a roster spot. So hopefully he gets that opportunity to prove himself, and that's all you can all you can do. You can leave it on the table and know you gave it a crack. And then if that doesn't happen, I I, I agree. I think I think it's I think G League he'll probably hang around for another year. Like mo- most of those guys that are fringe will hang around for a year or two until they get frustrated with the pay in the G League. And if he doesn't get any call ups, then I think um, the NBL or Europe could be on the cards. But we hope he sticks. And, and Dante, I agree. I, I I just can't see how someone wouldn't throw him a flyer look the injuries we know it's been noted he's had some injuries but he was phenomenal in Olympics and I think that proved his stock a lot he was healthy throughout it and that was games that were pretty much every other day or every second day played well through there but yeah, you can do a whole lot worse, even even as your you know your eight, nine, ten guy, where you're not relying on him to play thirty minutes a night. So you, there goes that that injury concerns. Obviously, much more diminished if he's not playing bulk minutes. And I think his energy, his defensive presence has really got much better. Um, there's a lot of teams out there that could that could use him. So I made I made, made some calls to a few teams, just kicking tires, trying to get him on a roster, and said, look, he's a great kid, and and you won't hear a peep from him culturally, and and he'll work hard. And it was, I think the the teams that I spoke to only had had two ways available, and I, I don't think he'll do a two way yet. So we'll watch that space, but hopefully they they both get picked up. Summer league. I'm going to be honest, I haven't watched a whole lot of summer league. I, I saw Josh Giddy's first game, and he turned his ankle straight away. I haven't really followed it too. Much much since saw Kaminga for the Warriors looks like a, a really unique talent with the way he can provide his skill set on the floor, put the ball on the floor, off the handle. Can, he's athletic enough, just a matter of where he's going to fit on that roster and what position he plays um, and next to who. That's about all I've seen for Summer League Pro. What about yourself? <laughs> I've watched a little bit of it, Bogues. I'm not a huge Summer League fan, like I, I said in the prior episodes, but from what I've seen, it's always the bowl bowl show. He's a guy who looks like Wilt Chamberlain during summer league and then he'll end up being like Johnny Chamberlain during the year. It's 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 always funny to watch guys that play really well in summer league but just can't get NBA games. But um as far as rookies and, and young players, I think Jalen Green um from Houston played really well. I think he's averaging about twenty points a game. You know, he's just athletic. He goes hard. He's one of those guys that he'll just keep attacking now. You know, he'll have plenty of opportunity in Houston. They're not going to be very good. And, you know, they'll give him plenty of opportunity, plenty of shots. And he's got a good coach down there. So, you know, he'll, he'll do well. Cade Cunningham has been solid. I think he's averaged about 19 a game. Um, you know, he's been good. He's, you know, he hasn't, he's shot it okay. He shot it about 42% from, you know, from the field. And, um, you know, 50 from the three. So he, he's played well. He's played solid. But a lot of the second year guys have been playing well. Like, well, Cam Thomas, too, a kid from LSU playing at Brooklyn. Um, I actually worked at money, went to Oak Hill Academy, one of the top high school programs in the country uh, down in Virginia. I worked with him a few years ago. He, he's played well. He's averaged 23 a game. He's, he's a two guard, could really, you know, could really shoot it. Uh, struggling a little bit from three, but he's, he's gone harder, guys. But, you know, the other guys that's been playing well, like Trey Jones has played well from the Spurs, 24. Um, Tyrese Maxey from Philly's played very well. You know, Patrick Williams from the Bulls have played well. Not a lot of great rookie sort of. I mean, there's been maybe one-offs with the rookie games, but um, it's more like, like I said in prior when we talked about Summer League, I think rookies are trying to feel themselves out in the, in the Summer League deal. It takes them a few games. But I think the second-year player has already gone through summer league already and already gone through a whole season and, and, you know, sort of strength coach and strength program and development program. They sort of know what summer league is about, and they tend to do a little bit better than the rookies do unless, you know, unless it's a another case. But, yeah, those are the, 
sort of the names. Even Max Strauss, Strauss from um, from Miami played well, 19, no, averaging about 19 a game. He's really firing it up. He doesn't really have much opportunity during the year. So this is where these guys get showcased. They get showcased because they're going to play well in their next, you know, they're going to get some time for their team, hopefully in the, in the next season, or they're getting showcased for trades early in the season. So, you know, the basketball is completely fucking brutal, though. I mean, seriously, it's like the Harlem fucking Globetrotters meets the circus meets fucking, you know, in one mixtape tour. It's hard to watch, you know, especially now. Now the guys are getting a little bit tired. They're coming up with some phantom injuries. So some of these first rounders don't have to play after like two games. You know, they get to go home and do what they got to do. But uh, yeah, that's my summer league report. Yeah, with the first rounders, though, it's a tough one for teams. Um, I guess they want them out there for a couple of games, get their feet wet. You just don't want to risk an injury in summer league, I guess. No. Nah. Especially if it's a top 10 pick. If it's, you know, if you're the 40th pick, yeah, you let them play all four or five games. Or if they've played really well the first two games and you're like, shit, this guy's going to be in our rotation and play minutes, time to shut him down. But if it's a kid that you know is probably not going to play a whole lot the first year, they'll, we'll usually see them, you know, playing every game and playing as hard as they can. But yeah, the teams are now very strategic with it because we've seen, we've seen guys have, you know, really bad injuries in summer league and I guess it's just um, one of those things where they don't want to you know, have that risk of, of losing a guy that they think is going to be in their rotation so we'll watch that space I've, I've enjoyed um, just seeing it's it's amazing how many people go out there now how many players and make a big deal about sitting courtside um, that's really been a big thing the last five probably five or ten years has just been such a massive thing now where it's it's really pumped up and, and that's the NBA for you um, for, for a summer league game but I know I know some of those guys that are elite level NBA talents can't be enjoying what they're watching at times no but folks I'll tell you what it's a multi-million dollar whole deal there for the summer league I remember so when I was with the Celtics we had a summer league in Boston we had I think there was like 16 teams or so. It was a pretty big league. It, it built up over about a three-year period. And then there's the Democratic Convention was coming in Boston one year. I was with Danny Ainge. I remember we were going to like the Elite Eight games at, uh, in New Jersey. And we were at a subway eating. And they had to make a decision because the Democratic Convention was coming into Boston that year, that summer. And there was going to be no hotel rooms. It's going to be traffic. It's a huge deal, a political thing in the United States. So we had to cancel it and we had to give all our teams to Las Vegas. And Las Vegas was like a, an okay, smaller, mid-level league. And then they got like almost every team. That was probably like 2000 and I want to say 2004 where they just got every team. And it's like, I mean, the tickets and sponsorship and all these classes that are being held in, in events in Las Vegas to sort of piggyback that. I mean, it's a multi, the guy that runs it, Warren Ligari, who sold it to the NBA and he still runs it. He represents coaches and stuff and GMs in the league. And um, it is a multi-million dollar media driven thing where like they're rolling everything out. They're rolling, you know, like new rule changes and rookies and trying to get their players to sort of go courtside because they'll usually work out for a couple of days with the team and then go back, you know, to wherever they're from. But yeah, it, they've it's a it's unbelievable. You know, halftime shows and it, it's it's a big deal, huge deal. It's an event. That's what the NBA loves. They love having an event within the event. So that's definitely no surprises. I'm going to move on to some coaches' comments that I've found interesting over the last couple of weeks. One was from Chauncey Billups. It went something like this. I'm not one of those coaches that wants to shoot all threes and get up 53s. I don't believe in that. That was his comment over the last week and it piqued my interest because I thought 
Have you seen the roster that you just acquired, Chauncey? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dames and Tor, you know, one of the best out there in scoring, but he's notorious for logo threes and, and pull up bad, what would be deemed bad pull up threes uh, once upon a time. CJ McCollum takes a lot of tough contested threes at times, and that's the way the game's going. And all we hear about is analytics and getting threes up, um, where this is uh, an interesting conundrum that we're in because Chauncey's from that. Detroit Pistons era where it was we're going to grind you out in the 80s and 90s and wrestle for every point. So, who do you think wins that battle, uh, bro? You know who's going to win that battle. (laughs) It's not going to be Chauncey. (laughs) You know, and this is where inexperienced coaches, because Chauncey has no coaching experience. He's, you know, coached one year and he's been an analyst for, you know, since he retired. He hasn't coached anywhere. And this is where you got to be careful because you know, everything, especially these days, gets magnified. You know, sometimes as an ex-player or in your playing days, you're used to saying whatever you want, whenever you want it. And everybody loves your comments. Well, now this is a this is sort of an example of where you got to chill a little bit with this stuff because it could be taken the wrong way. You've got a guy who's, he doesn't have any feet out the door yet in, in, in Dame. It's probably going to head that way at some point. But like right now, everything's just okay. It's not great. It's not terrible. But you can't be saying stuff that sort of fuses these things. And I think that you got to chill with that. Look, it's not the worst thing in the world to say, look, I don't want to just jack out bad shot. I, like you just got to watch what you say. Unfortunately, that's what it is because the media and social media just takes a run at you. And that's what he's done. And it's not smart to say it's going to get back. You know, and they're going to twist it, and you know, you know, they're, they're already going to twist it and throw it around. And yeah, it's just not, especially the roster they have, like McCollum and, you know, Norman Powell and, you know, and Dame. And I mean, it's just a, a roster of guys who shoot. It's just, that's how the league is. I mean, you could say that to your team, but don't say it in the media just because everyone's going to use it against you. You don't think Philly, who wants Dame and some of these other teams, are, aren't going to start, you know, trying to get to him, get to his agent saying, oh, what do you mean? You know, what, what's your boy doing? You know, he's not looking to shoot threes. You got to get out of there, blah, blah, blah. And now it's going to fuel the fire because everything from now until he's gone is going to be fueling him to leave. And comments like this, look, you're not a player anymore. You're not a media guy anymore where you can say anything you want to say. You've got to be careful of what you say. That's why the veteran coaches, you know, especially the ones that are sort of savvy, they know even if they feel a certain way, they can't say it because it's it's going to head to this, you know. It's going to be a, a rough deal. Yeah, no, and then the first game they lose where someone shoots more threes than them, like not even makes more threes, just shoots more threes. Like they, let's say Portland shoot 20 and another team shoots 40, you know what's going to happen. You're going to have every beat writer in the world saying, are those comments? They're going to lose every game if they don't do this. So yeah, you're totally right. It's just going to, it's just pouring more fuel on the fire. It's definitely a conversation. And I, I agree somewhat with Chauncey, like the game is going more three predicated, but I'm not a fan of the pull up contested three in transition early in the shot clock after you've just bricked three straight possessions. I'm not a fan of that. I'm a fan of time and place. So I'm a, if you've hit the last two or three and you're feeling good and you want to take a logo one, I'd live with it, right? But it's it's time and place, um, time and score, and I, I somewhat agree with him. But yeah, the way the game's going, it's it's all it's a three it's a three for all, not a free for all. It's a nice pun, but um, it really is in the NBA. You got you got to jack them up. The other comment I saw that was interesting: Becky Hammond. You know, in in, in this era of uh, diversity hires and having a higher X Y Z, um, someone of a certain gender, sex, or sexuality, or race, or skin color, um, she's 
made some comments saying, please don't hire me to check a box. That's the wrong thing you can do for me. Hire me because of my skill sets and coaching, who I am as a person. Well done, Becky Hammond. I totally agree. I think she's hit it out of the park and that's that's what it should be. We've, we've, we've gone on rants about this for over the last six months about, about best available for the job regardless of all those factors and I think she's hit it on the head. Like hire her because she's qualified to do the job and hire her because she's going to help your team win games and better your team culturally and improve the player development and um, I, I liked what she said. So, uh, you know, hopefully she means it and at the end of the day, Whenever that first woman's hired, there's going to be that stigma of was it a, a check of a box, as Becky Hammond said, and that's something they're going to have to deal with, which is you know probably unique to the first female that's going to be hired that, that males generally don't have to deal with. But um, yeah, how'd you find those comments? Yeah, I call a little bit of bullshit though. I, I do think that yeah, she is right what she said. Hey, look, hire me for I'm the right person. But here's my thing, because it's human nature, and I think any assistant coach in that league would say the same thing that hasn't been a head coach yet and hasn't really made real money yet. If her agent comes up to her and says, look, the Portland Trailblazers, you know, wants to hire you. And he goes, look, they want to hire this coach, but they're going to hire you because you're a woman. Because, uh, you know, they want the media and the owner's wife is sort of, you know, she's pushing for it. Or the owner's a woman, but like say the owner's a man and, and her wife was pushing. And she knows that, but say, hey, look, Becky, you're going to have control of the team. You're going to hire most of your staff. They'll hire. They want one person they're going to hire in the front of the bench with you. I don't think she's going to give a fuck that she's a woman or not. I think that she's going to say, you know what? It's four years, $16 million. I get to coach my own team and I get my job. I think she will go to, she'll go to Target or Staples, buy a Sharpie, go to the city and check the box for them. And I think that she'll <laughs> say, I'm going to take this job. That's what I think because it's human nature both. Anybody in that league, especially when it's not about them, they'll be like, oh, hire me for this, hire me, when you don't have a job yet because there hasn't been a woman offered a job yet in the NBA. It, but if they're going to offer a job now, I'll tell you when she wouldn't take the job because she'll 100% take it even if it's, a, if it's a deal like that. But she would not take the job, I think, if they said, yeah, they're going to hire you because you're a woman and they're going to control, like, they're going to do, like, the New Orleans deal. They're going to control your whole staff. You can't hire anybody. Um, they're going to control the rotations. And now you're just going to be a puppet. I guarantee you she wouldn't take it then. Because not only are they just checking a box, but also it's going to be a – you have no control over it. But I don't think – I think she says that stuff because everybody talks tough with this stuff. But I think that if she was offered a job at four years, $16 million, that she's going to take it. As long as she has control over it and she could run it, that's what I think. Because, folks, this whole thing and the problem about the NBA and, and, and the female hires and things with the assistant coaches, half the league does check boxes. Half of them like don't value the position. They need to do it because they need, A, the media when they hire these women assistant coaches. Not every team, but... For my information is telling me, like, there's about half of the league that just hires them. Hey, look, we need to do it, you know, and they don't have any real mentoring that goes on with, with the females. They don't really have a real plan for them. I don't think half the league has plans for any of their coaches, their assistant coaches. They're just there. And I think that that, like, but for Becky, I think that, yeah, she, I mean, she, that said in the right things, don't hi hire me for me. But I, I, when push comes to shove, she'll take the job. Because it's a it's a it's a life changing money and you get to do what you want to do. 
you want you you want to be a head coach. Like if you're sitting there and you're an African American assistant coach, and this team says, "Hey, we're going to hire you because you're you're an African American. We haven't had an African American in ten years or, or forever coach our team, and we need we're we're getting pressure, so we're going to make that move." Are you telling me you're not going to take the job? Are you going to tell me that like now you're going to be? Oh, wait a minute, I'm not going to take the job because of this. No, like if if they're saying that you know. Any, anything to, to, to do with that. If you really want to be a head coach, I think you can look past that a little bit. As long as you have control of your own destiny and not micromanaging you, I think that she would take the job even if she knew that. A, no one's going to really tell you that 100% anyway. They're not going to put it out there that they're going to hire just because it's a woman. But I think she will take the job. It's life-changing money and you do what you dreamed of doing your whole life is coach being a head coach. I think she would do it, even if she knew that, as long as she had control of her situation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, the only reason I found the comments um, unique is because it's kind of the ante of what you're supposed to say. <laughs> you yeah. know, you're almost supposed to say, yeah, it's bullshit. The NBA hasn't hired a woman as a head coach. I'm that, I'm that, you know, I'm that lady, I'm that girl, I'm that woman. Um, it's about time. That's kind of what we hear. So she's kind of gone against the narrative of, of what is acceptable to say publicly, in my opinion. But um, yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's just interesting. It was just an interesting one to see. Um, I totally agree with you. You put the money talks, bullshit walks, like we always say. So, um, whether you know you're a token hire or not, um, once that that inks down on paper and you've got a chance to put your name next to it, um, you know, ninety nine percent of people are going to be like, "Yep, done. Where do I sign? What do I do?" So, hey, if anybody wants to check a box of a fat fuck bald guy, I'll check the box for you as well. So, if there's anybody out there that wants to give me four years of sixteen and only hire me because of that. I'm in. Well, you I'm make an interesting in. point. There's not how many big bone coaches are left. Is Thibs the, the last one that I can off the top of my head? Well, he's not even that big bone, but yeah, like, he's, he'd be the, the last bigger gentleman, right? So there might you might have a course yeah. to go public pro and start a campaign about you know a bit of uh, diversity oh. in the in the BMI body body fat percentage hirings of NBA coaches because it's there's obviously an agenda against you. Bones, I'm so fat, my fucking bones have liquefied. I got no bones left. So I'm not even, I'm past big boned. I'm just fat. I'm just fucking fat. I could take it. <laughs> well, that's a way to railroad yourself. You just lost the chance to railroad yourself into a job, bro. You, you could have been a victim, but um, I digress. That's all right. That's <laughs> all right. You know what? I'll take this. This job's a better a fit for me. That's the only thing I can fit into is this fucking job. Yeah. So we'll go with that. Uh, we spoke about this a couple of pods ago. So the lake is... Kings, Sacramento Kings, I believe, or no, sorry, LA Kings, Ducks, Galaxy, Chargers have all mandated vaccinations for all employees. Not a huge deal by most people's standards, I guess, but wait for it. Players are not on that list, pro. Um, Of course. So this is a real slippery slope. Um, If you're you're an employee that does not want to get the vaccination um, and you get fired... Whereas there's other employees, which are players, who they've they've worded as saying, "Well, they're they're they've got a separate union, and we don't want to get involved in that." I feel lawsuits coming, pro. I think there's going to be some wrongful dismissal claims. I, I don't know about you, but you, you you know you can't have you can't have one rule for half your employees, regardless of unions and all that shit, and one rule for another. And this just comes down as they're the elite athletes, and they're elite, so they get different set of rules. This is not gonna not gonna finish well, I don't believe, because there's going to be there's going to be lawyers lining up to take these cases. 
Nah, Bogues, I said it. I said it when we talked about it before. It's it's bullshit. Look, if you're behind this stuff, if you're if you're a league that's all for it, then force your players to do it. And if you if you're an assistant coach, look, the the players are going to get more than the assistants. They're going to be treated better than the, the coaching staff ninety nine percent of the time. And for ninety nine percent of the time, the coaches are like, you know what? It is what it is. They're the show, not us. And I get it. But with this, fuck that. If I look, I, I got the vaccine, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not against the vaccine. But I understand if you don't want to get it, I, I totally get you. I understand it. But you're not going to tell me as an assistant coach who doesn't believe in it that I don't want to get it for one reason or another. And then the players, all these guys, they, they don't want to take it, so they're not going to get it. And that's okay. You can't do it that way. That's bad fucking leadership. Because now I'm sitting there like, wait a minute, my life's my life doesn't mean you know more or less than, than these guys. I don't want to do it. My value system is you know it, it's not as good as the players is. It, we're all the same, and we got to treat us all the same. So no, fuck that. I'm not. I'm not for that at all. That's bullshit. Yeah, it is. It's just going to be interesting to see because I think it, you can't have um, you know for the record, I'm I'm a choice guy. So with with medical stuff, um, which I'll cop shit for. I've had I've had my vaccinations as far as flu shots and. I had to go to Brazil when there was that Zika virus back in 2016. I got the shot for that. Um, I had all my all my shots are up to date, but you know, with with all of those that I've had and the COVID one, I, I'm I'm all for um, people making their own medical decisions. Um, that's just that's just what I think, and I'm not going to pressure someone to not do it or or to do it. I respect your decision, but yeah, in this circumstance. If you're going to have a blanketed rule, whether you agree with that rule or not, it should be the same for everyone. And and this is just yeah, you, you can't not not only assistant coaches like think about if you're just a you know you just work in ticket sales or you just work in you know you're you're a janitor at the facility you know even the, the people that are on um, lower wages that work around there that lose their job it's like oh you're, you're not vaccinated see you later. And then you're watching TV, and you know player X, the stars, um, not vaccinated, and and he's he's still fine. And yeah, it's 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 going to be it's just a dangerous precedent, and it's not a, it's not going to be strictly um, unique to the NBA. It's going to be a lot of a lot of different workplaces. So we'll watch that space, but just an interesting one in the world of professional sports. Did you happen to see the Jason Kidd blow up the last week or so? I did. Mm. I did. So for those not familiar, Giannis has. There's a biography out, I believe. I'm not sure when that came out. Has it been out for a while? I think it's been, it just came out uh, semi recently. Mm. I, I'm not I'm not on top of that, but probably in the last couple of months, if not very much sooner. So there's a few grabs that people have posted online. One of them is about Jason Kidd, the Christmas Grinch. So I'll read this one out real quick. Bucks were struggling, dropping a game to Charlotte, December 23rd, right before Christmas. Players returned to the locker room, dejected, silent. Everyone was ready for the next two days off with their families. Zaza, kid said, turning to Pachulia, but addressing the team, uh, addressing the group, do you think this was a winnable game? Yes, it was a winnable game, Pachulia said, and do you think we deserve the next two days off? Pachulia couldn't believe that kid had put him in that position. Threatening to ruin Christmas, Pachulia tried to make a diplomatic, uh, strike a diplomatic tone. You know what, coach? I understand the frustration. We're all frustrated, but this was a game we were supposed to win. We didn't give enough effort, but at the same time, this is a holiday. Christmas is important to our 
our families. It's not about us. It's about our families. Guys have made plans already. So, just quickly, people out there, when, when the Christmas games are coming up or there's a holiday, usually your coaches will notify you a week before what the plan will be. So, some guys go out of town. They, they fly home to family. Some guys have family come in. Whatever it is, they'll give you a bit of notice. You can kind of organize yourself. That's kind of pretty normal. Of course, unless you're playing on Christmas Day, then you're kind of screwed um, like I was with the Warriors for most of the time. But that, that's a privilege to play on that day anyway. So, Kid then turned to Dudley. What do you think? Should we take these next two days off? Dudley 2 gave a diplomatic answer. Kid wasn't satisfied. See you guys tomorrow at 9 a.m. Well, 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 the players said, what do you mean? We're going to have practice tomorrow. We book flights to different places. A kid said, I don't care. You guys get paid to do a job. So, you're doing your job tomorrow. Things change. Practice the next morning was ugly. Kid went at Sanders, Larry Sanders, called him a piece of shit, a terrible player. The team ran and ran and ran like a college team would. I don't think I've done that since I left Jason Kidd, Brandon I says. It was not normal. Players had to finish a fast break drill in 22 seconds, but 27 was the team's best record. They did it over and over and they made until they made it. Some were bent over, panting, panting, cramping. Practice lasted three hours. That's insanely long for an NBA practice mid-season. Um, usually a two-hour would be crazy long. But anyway, kid made the players lift weights and do pool exercises. Half the team didn't know how to swim. <laughs> <laughs> but kid made everyone run in the pool. Everyone was so tired. Nobody was thinking about Christmas. We didn't have any energy left to open gifts, Petulia said. Kid continued to berate Sanders, though, calling him pathetic. Sanders couldn't handle it. Where he was in his life, his career, his this practice, all his mistakes, all his frustrations, he felt his entire body turn to jelly as he cramped from head to toe. Out of full body convulsion, Sanders said. My body broke down. Physically, I couldn't take it. And mentally, I really couldn't take it. Sanders asked to be excused to the bathroom. Oh, don't worry, said kid. As Sanders walked away, we'll wait, then run some more. Sanders left the facility, took himself to the hospital, spending the night there. If you knew what had happened in the aftermath and he didn't have the energy then to talk about it, I don't think he's a bad person, Sanders says about kid. But mentally, he kind of brain fucked me a little. <laughs> it was a lot of, you know, I love you, kiss you on the cheek. Now it's all about money. Who cares about your mental health, your body breaking down? I'm happy. I'm in a much better place now. He says, I'm sorry. It had to go out the way it did. So, that's the first one. We'll get to a few more later. But how do you, do you, you know, it's a tough one because, you know, I played with Larry Sanders, by the way, and he was he was a great teammate. I had no issues with him. He played hard. He was still learning the game when he when we drafted him, but very, very long athletic, had a lot of potential. So, I don't really see Larry as, as a lying kind of guy. But the Christmas thing's an interesting one. Um, I'm not sure, Pro, if you've been on any teams that have changed plans like that, but I have. I think Scott Skiles did that a couple of times when we were supposed to have a day off. I still remember we <laughs> one year we played in- I was in Milwaukee, so we, we played- uh, the end of our West Coast road trip was in Sacramento, and Skiles always had a thing about flying after games home. He wasn't one guy, a guy that would stay in the city overnight. If we could, if we could get home, he'd, he'd get home. So we played Sacramento. Um, Sacramento sucked back then, and we lost to him in Sacramento. We fly back to Milwaukee, so we're fighting the time difference. They're already, I think, Sacramento to Milwaukee. Milwaukee's two hours ahead. So by the time we leave, get on a plane from Sacramento, it was like two or three a.m. Milwaukee time. So we landed at like six thirty or seven a.m., which is ridiculous in itself, and. As we're getting off the plane, um, our trainer comes back and says, practice 10 a.m. So, we're like, all right, cool. See you tomorrow. He's like, no, 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 no. Today. Practice 10 a.m. today. Everyone's like, what do you mean? We just landed at 7 a.m. So, I live 
30 minutes from the airport. So I, I basically drove to a subway, got a breakfast sandwich and just went to the facility and, and it was the worst day of my life, like for everyone. I remember Tyron Lou was in the hot tub that morning well, before the practice right off the plane and he told me point blank, yeah, I'm retiring, man, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done after this. this. This season's killed me. So there are coaches that are taskmasters and, and kid has a point you are paid to play the game and that's the unique luxury you have of playing NBA basketball is Christmases birthdays New Year celebrations they all go out the window they're at the peril of, of a basketball game and you have to respect that but do you agree with with what Jason Kidd did and would you have handled it differently as a head coach look you, you only have certain amount of bullets in your gun that you could pull and if you're gonna die on a hill don't fucking die on a hill by practicing and busting a player's balls the day before Christmas or two days before Christmas. You got to know better than that. Now, they didn't have any superstars in the team. So it's a little bit different. You could be, you could be a bully if you want to with a lot of younger kids, uh, you know, which mostly they had on the roster at that time. I, I think that it's, it's, sometimes it's hard because your emotions get the best of you. But you got to understand that this thing's a fucking marathon. And if you think you want to be a tough guy one day in practice – you know, showing them who's boss. It could really hurt you in the future uh, of your self-coaching because you better be fucking good. You better be a championship-level team in producing. And then you could say, you know, they could say that whole thing where – because I've, I've been around tyrants before, fucking terrible people. But the people in charge would be like, oh, no, they're just motivated, you know, Bill Belichick style. You know, they're just driven to win. But you better be fucking right when you do shit like that. I think that it's best to sort of, you know, I think it's best to just sort of like calm down, take a breath and say, you know what, let's give them off. It's Christmas, a couple of days. And then when we come back, we'll address it. Because I think when you, when you overreact and this is about 99% of people, if they're going to overreact, they're going to overreact in this situation right here where they think they're lethargic, they're not earning their money. You know, you could be pissed, you could rip into them a little bit. But I think doing things like this sets you up for, you know, some bad shit. And it did for him. Um, he didn't last all that much longer after that. And I just think you got to relax. You got to learn from this. You know, hey, look, you're always going to make a mistake as a coach. You know, you, you're not going to be perfect. And something like this, I think you just say, you know what? Next time in this situation, I'll handle it differently. I definitely disagree with this. I think that, look, you, you can make your point. You can be a prick. But you... Like, you just got to choose time and place. There's discipline and then there's personal insults, right? So, yeah. you can be disciplined like, no, we're coming to practice. We're just going to get an hour in. But that's what most coaches that were pissed that if we had a day off, they would just make you come in just to come in. You know what I mean? Like, just that whole, all right, we didn't earn this day off. We're coming in. But they wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily try to, you know, three-hour berate you where you're collapsing. Um, but there's discipline and then there's just personal kind of psychological warfare, which funnily enough was a comment from um, Nixon Dorvillian, Bucks assistant trainer from 2014 to 16. Jason has a brilliant mind, but he kind of made you uncomfortable around him. When players go through it and it's uncomfortable, they like to say he's playing mind games with me, but it's not that at all. That was Greg Foster. He's trying to get you to do something you wouldn't normally do. That's coaching. Um, but then there was you know, some further comments that said his coaching style with the Nets and then with the Bucks was described as psychological warfare by one form a player when asked about kid players and coaches often say on the record or off so i think there's some smoke to that fire what you're talking about and, and there's discipline and i've been under the most craziest like rick majerus was the ultimate disciplinarian and 
and was 10 out of 10 on the personal jibes and just had to figure it out. And it's not something you should have dealt with, but it was what you had to deal with at the time. I'm more, I like the disciplinarian side of coaching where it's like, hey, this is, this, these are our standards and we're not, we're not bending those standards for anyone. But if someone bends those, you don't then, you know, call them every name under the sun in front of the group. There's different ways of handling that. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. It's a bench. See, most NBA coaches don't use that. If you don't do what they're supposed to do, and you and look, people can have bad games. They're going to shit the bed. They're going to have shitty, you know, slumps of two or three games in a row sometimes. And you've been around it. You understand that. But if they're not, if they're not respecting the game, if they're not respecting being a pro, then you use the fucking bench. But most of these teams, I, I don't blame some of these coaches because they don't want to use the bench because they don't want to stand up to their players, their better players especially, because they're not going to get the support from the management and ownership yeah, they're because they're going to take the player side. They're going to get fired anyway. <laughs> so I guess if you're going to go out, go out your own way. But I'm telling you, it's not going to help, especially in today's age. That was a few years back. Now, fast forward six years, eight years or whatever it's been. Imagine now how much like player empowerment's changed if he tries to even play bullshit like that. That'll be all over the internet. It's not going to wait eight years for that to come out. It's going to get all over it and it's not going to be good for you. There aren't many coaches that could survive doing that shit what he did because, you know, it's going to get out and I don't, I don't give a fuck. It's, it's going to be bad. Yeah. But use your bench, you know, use your bench. You never have to like, you don't have to get personal with a player. Go use the bench. Have some fucking balls and use the bench. And that's what that's what I would say. Use the bench. But hey, look, I mean, it's easy for me to say it. I'm not the one coaching. You know, I've been pissed at players before, but I've never done anything close to that. But I understand. Hey, everybody feels a certain way and thinks they got to do it a certain way. But I just don't think that that style will work, especially in today's age. I mean, can you imagine? Doing that to an NBA team today, no. folks. What would happen? <laughs> you talk about the the strikes that they were pulling during the bubble. This maybe there'd be some strikes from practices and games. Um, you know, and I think the the straw that broke the camel's back was the final one. It was one January game at Philadelphia. The Bucks messed up a defensive coverage. Kid thought Giannis had made the mistake. Giannis respectfully insisted that it wasn't his mistake. They went back and forth, but Giannis stood his ground diplomatically, saying, "Coach, I promise it wasn't me." Then at halftime, Kid had the play pulled up on film. Show me, Kid said, confident he was right, but Kid was actually wrong. The film showed it wasn't Giannis's mistake. Kid still benched Giannis for the second half. The Bucks were blowing the 76ers out, so Kid didn't necessarily need to put Giannis back in, but he was making a point. Yeah, you're getting better, but I'm still the boss. And that's a concerning one for me. You can be a disciplinarian, but if you make a mistake, you got to own it the same way a player does. And, and you might be like, my bad, my bad, Giannis. You're right. Yep. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. You know, I was wrong this time. Um, these are the conversations we have to have as a championship potential winning team or a playoff team. Now we get on with it. But the fact that he still went, you know, passive aggressive and benched him, you know, it's, yeah, it's just an interesting one to me. And I think the reason why I read that one out is because we all know it's Giannis's team now. And Giannis was always going to be the guy eventually. He was just growing into that role when, when J Kid was there. But back to your point, that would have been Giannis asked in management, do we keep this guy around? And Giannis would probably remember that as like, probably not the guy we want around. See, with this, with Jason, right? Like, I, I wouldn't care. Right now, I wouldn't care because that was eight years ago. Now, the, what he should care about is what he's going to be going through with his new job. That was eight years ago. There are people who just fuck up in their in, in, in a job earlier in their career. They make a mistake. It might cost them their job. It might not. But they figure it out. You know what? Okay, I got to change because I can't be like this 
and keep my job and have any type of sort of future with the team. But now he's coming into it where it's not easy street, but he's got one of the best players that play the game. And he's in charge. Yeah, kid's in charge, but this kid, he's got to be able to make it work and he's got to figure it out, you know, because him as a player, he didn't want to get fucked with either kid. Like he want, like he's a, a brilliant thinker as a player. So he, he wanted to figure it out. Where same thing with Luca. Now, how is he going to handle that? Now, the problem with the NBA is coaches always revert back to who they really are. They change, they go through whatever, they have to be an assistant if they get fired or they just go to another job. They said, oh, that's behind me, I'm going to change. They change for about two months until the games start and it's back to who they really are. All he needs to do is be able to manage this thing, like figure out the things that he didn't do right in his previous job and try to eliminate those things the best he can. All he has to do is hold... Luca accountable, coach him, but let the kid figure some things out. And when things get really bad, just relax, handle it internally, and things will be good. But the problem is if he reverts back to this stuff, he's got no future there. If he just sort of, you know, if he can just sort of cut that stuff out of it, the mental warfare and things like that, if that's the case, I don't know Jason Kidd at all. I've met him like two times and I don't know anything about him. I, I, yeah, I've heard stories of him as a player, but if he can just sort of manage Luca, hold him accountable, hold the team accountable, you know, but be open, you know, deliver on things that he says he's going to deliver on and, and just sort of don't be that tyrant. If that's, if that was a hundred percent true story in that book, don't do that. Just handle these things a little bit better. They've got Don Coxstein, who, you know, DK, you were down DK a little bit, but I was around him for six years. Like, he could be a huge help to this situation. And if, the, if, if, if he does need help in these things. And I think that it's big for Jason because if this thing goes bad, and I don't think it will, I think he'll be fine. But if it does go bad, it's going to be hard for him to get another job after this. But he's got it all set up. They've got a roster that's decent. They've got one of the best players in the game. They've got an owner that supports him, and they've got great support staff. But he's got to, like, in these situations, he's got to be better. He's got to eliminate these things. He's got to, going into this thing for the next few months, got to say, I got to get rid of this and this. This is what I do well. This is what I've had issues with in the past, and I can't fucking go back to this. Because 95% of coaches go back to, they again, they it's sort of like the player who had a bad attitude his whole career and then in, in training camp, oh, it's all behind me, I found God, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And then two fucking weeks later, they're in a strip club, domestic abuse. contract comes in, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you just gotta, don't revert back to who you, who you were. Just fucking try to eliminate, like, prioritize that stuff, eliminate the most you can, and then move on because he could have a future here. He's, he's royalty, but that is a skeleton in his closet that he's got to get off of and he'll be fine. I think he'll be all right. Me too. The reason why I say this, he's a, he's a high IQ basketball player and a high IQ coach. So, he'd be reading the stuff that's out there knowing that, you know, I can't, I can't go on and do this, that, and like we said, the player empowerment thing has changed. So, he's reading the room. I, I, I don't think he's silly. I think he's going to have to adapt. Um, he might have a day or two re- reverts back, but they're acceptable. The day or two is, is okay every now and then. 
like you said, you got, you got the bullets and the gun. You got six shots for the year. You don't want to blow all those in training camp because you're not you're not going to have any left. So I think I think that'll all work out in the end. But it's yeah, it's just a matter of putting all that behind you, um, learning from it, and you know he'll, he'll be okay at the end of the day. But the three hour sessions, I, I think they're going to have to be a thing of the past as well because you're not you're not pulling that shit these days um, with especially with the union rules that there's rules around that now and even in the, within the players' union. So of how much you can be on the court between game days and whatnot. So we'll see how we'll see how that space goes. But wish him all the best. Real quickly, Adam Silver had some interesting comments about China. So he was pressed about how that's all going. And he said, I'll begin by saying, of course, it's complicated. And at the end of the day, we're a US company. We're going to follow, you know, American policy towards China. And you know, whether it was the Trump administration or Biden administration, at least so far, they've been encouraging trade. As you know, ultimately, we're in the export business. We export American basketball in China. And I would say that comes with it's American culture as well. And that, you know, my personal feeling is I look at the mission of the NBA, which is to improve people's lives through basketball. I think continuing to operate in China is completely consistent with our mission. To your point, putting aside how you define a fan, we have hundreds and millions of fans in China who watch NBA basketball over the course of the year. The reason why I found this interesting is just with everything going on, the NBA at the end of the day needs China. Uh, regardless of, of, of the comments of Daryl Morey back in the day, the political you know things going on in the world, they they know their 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 values of their franchise and their league is not going to continue to go up without China. To, to tell onto this, there was a you know a separate story saying the NBA's official game ball is owned by a Chinese company accused of uh, using Olga slave labor that has threatened to cut ties with the league for supporting pro democracy protesters in Hong Kong. So that was um, that was reported as well two weeks ago when the league obviously Daryl Morey made those tweets a year ago but that's just something I, I found interesting um, with, with Adam Silver I think he's kind of more that political soft approach even behind the scenes even with player empowerment even with all of that and with saying that I wanted to reference a once famous David Stern interview you know, we I think we long for David Stern. A lot of us these days. He was an Iron Fist pro, but he was he was fun. He was smart. He was quirky, but he was there was no fucking around with him, right? Um, I think he understood the relationship mm-hmm. with China to an extent as well. But let me play this clip, and then we'll have a chat. This was uh, this was David Stern, and you know what is it, ten fifteen years ago on the Jim Rome show, getting grilled by Jim Rome. I think he handled it beautifully. You know, New Orleans won the draft lottery, which of course produced the usual round of speculation that maybe the lottery was fixed. I know that you appreciate a good conspiracy theory as much as the next guy was the fix in for the lottery. Uh, you know, I have two answers for that. I'll, I'll give you the easy one. No. And a statement. Shame on you for asking. You know, I, I understand why you would say that to me. And I wanted to preface it by saying it respectfully. I think it's my job to ask because I think people wonder. No, it's ridiculous, but that's okay. I, I know, I I know that back, you think it's ridiculous, but I don't think the question is ridiculous because I know people think that. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that I do, but I think it's my job to ask you that. I, have you stopped beating your wife yet? Yeah, I don't know if that's fair. I don't know if that's fair. Why is that? Because I think that there are, and I, and I know you read your emails, and I'm sure you follow things virally and on Twitter. People really do think it, whether it's fair or not. Well, they think it because people you don't. Like you don't think you. the question is fair to ask if, if your fans think it? Silly questions. I expect it to be written about, and you know, I actually I, I commented last night at my presser that there was one guy who I won't signify by naming says I have no reason to know anything, and I don't know anything, but I tell you, I believe it's fixed. Okay, that's good. Why is that? Well, because this team won it, and if that team won it, it would have been a fix also, and if that team won it. 
it would have been fixed also. And if and if uh, every team was invited to have a representative there, and if there were four members of the media there, and if Ernst and Young certified it, you still think yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, there's that clip. I think it was. Um Pretty hilarious, pro. What did you, you think about that clip? Do you remember it from back in the day? I did remember it a little bit, man. It's uh, you know, he uh, you hit it right on the head. He's got balls. He 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 didn't care who he said things to, when he said it. You know, he he never relinquished any control of the situation, and he doesn't care. He had two middle figures up. He's gonna do things his way, and uh, it was pretty. It was pretty cool. Now, that was funny as shit. And the fact that the league, I think, is reaping the rewards of what David Stern did for it. I, I don't think anyone can argue that what we're seeing today in the last 10 years is David Stern to a T. He's the one that you know pushed towards China and understood that we need we need support from the biggest population in the world. Um, Yao Ming, you know, it all worked out perfect, perfectly timing-wise. That was a blessing in disguise um, to get Yao Ming in the league for 10 odd years. But as much as players hated him, I think he's he's the big thank you card in my opinion. And Adam Silver is reaping the rewards of it. But just just interesting, two two different ways of handling things. You know, we need to handle it more delicately. I'd, I'd wonder how, how would you think uh, David Stern would fare today? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, like I don't think he would change. So here's the thing, like he'd either if he had the job still, he would be the same. He would he would be a little bit muzzled, a little bit. But not much. And I think that if he felt as though he couldn't operate the way he wanted to operate, he'd be he'd be out. He'd be he'd leave. But I think if he was still in capacity in the job, that he would stand up the way he's always has. He might change a few things. Obviously, he's a smart guy, a legal legal background, especially. But that he's he was the best, and I love that dude, man. He he took no shit. I t- I think I told you the story, Bogues, of a guy who worked for the Celtics, worked for the the league in the PR department, and like Friday five o'clock, six o'clock, they're going down in the elevator together, and you know chit chat, whatever. You know, you say hey. You know, Mr. Stern, we're, you know, Dave, we're, we're dealing with, you know, we're doing some good things here, you know, in the PR department. We just want to let you know. You know, you'd think it's like, all right, bullshit. Oh, thanks. That'd be great. And then just leave. Well, he goes, oh, let's sit down, and Bill, and you tell me exactly what you're working on. And he grilled him for fucking 45 minutes about what he's like. Here's his poor prick. He just wanted to fucking say some, you know, some, some like chit chat getting out of the elevator and in the elevator and this fucking guy grills him for an hour on just some little cliche he threw out thinking he was just going to leave for the weekend. <laughs> I love the guy, man. I fucking love him. Yeah, he had a presence. Um, I remember seeing him around NBA China events when we played over there with the Warriors and the Bucks and players, as much as they talk tough when he wasn't around, when he was around, it was like, you know, because he, he'd just be, he'd just find you. He didn't care. He's like, fine, fine, Mm-mm. fine. 10K, 20K, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> just like... Dude. In the league meetings too with owners, he didn't take any shit. Nah, he'd go at Girl. owners. I heard about those those owner meetings were nuts. Yeah, he didn't give a fuck. He did not care. He's not, you know, he's not going to go in the fetal position for, for anybody. No, nah. he, he was uh, he was a tough prick. I, lo- I love that guy, man. He is okay. We'll move on. We'll wrap this up real quick. We have our guest arriving soon. Just real quick to finish the basketball stuff out before we get to stats. The NBL will most likely be postponed if I'm a betting man. Uh, lockdowns in both New South Wales and Victoria. Look like they're not going to end anytime soon. The season, generally preseason, starting next month. Um, historically, I just don't think it's going to happen. So I would, I would probably 
think that it's going to be a month, maybe more, um, or depending on on, on government, um, we, we could potentially see another hub deal, who knows, but uh, yeah, I, you know, it just doesn't look like it's going to move ahead as planned. Stats useful and useless. How's this one, Pro? This is from a fan. Hi, Bogues. A stat for useful and useless. Andrew Bogut is a career oh. 43% three-point marksman for the Australian national team on just just under one attempt a game, pretty much one attempt a game, in, yeah. according to Real GM. Outranking our guy, Andrew Gaze's 39% career mark. Useful or useless, Pro? I think it's very much use fucking less. That is use <laughs> fucking less. All right, that is a useless fucking stat, folks. I love you. I love you to death. Use, use, fuck, fucking useless. How about you? Your own nepotism. What do you think? Oh, boom, boomer bogues. I'm, I'm a better three point shooter than Andrew Gaze. <laughs> when I got the green, green and gold on, hey, it goes up. And I, I told you, I shot it. So de- you're like, uh, shot it decently well for the national team. Believe it or not, that that shorter line helped me a little bit. I think that's a better name than Fever Patty. You bo- <laughs> boomer bogues. I like that. That's th- too bad we didn't get that ten years ago. That would have been fucking yeah. good. I can use it in the context of all these uh, millennials using Boomer as well. So I'll take it either way. Sure. Um, that was from yeah. Scott Freer in, in Adelaide. Appreciate that one, Scott. Got a good laugh out of it. And, and it's true, you know, truth and humor. Next one. This came from the almighty pro. Zach Levine has won four straight Olympic games during the Olympics. This is his longest winning streak since college. Never has he won four games in a row in the NBA, pro. Useful or useless? Oof. This is a tough one, Bogues. It's funnily, it's funnily useful, in my opinion. You just yes. Imagine not having a four fucking game winning streak. I you know. Imagine like you you played in the league what seven years or so. Yeah. And you haven't been you haven't had a four fucking game win streak. Now look, it's like the plus minus thing, which is totally for the most part fucking bullshit in my in my eyes. Like you've got. Sometimes you don't, you're a victim of your situation. You're a victim of players you have on your team, your organization. You know, one guy can't pull a whole team together to win games. But you think seven fucking years you haven't, or eight years or however, you can't pull off a four fucking game winning streak. And the fact Jeez. that he did it in a tournament that only had seven games. <laughs> That's so unbelievable, six right? Games makes it even funnier. But uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's somewhat useful. But yeah, he's probably a, the other factor would be that he's played in bloody Minnesota and Chicago the last you know decade, so that hasn't helped. But final one, <laughs> Luka Doncic, youngest player in NBA history to score a two hundred million dollar contract. He's twenty three in February. Useful or useless? <sighs> Pretty. Uh, I mean, it's useful, but like, I mean, it's just the age thing, right? Yeah. So to me, it's yeah. useless because it's useful because the guy's a fucking brilliant player, he's a great player. But I mean, it's just the age thing. Like a player. So what happens when they take the they take the one year out rule out? You know what I'm saying? So a, a younger guy gets into the league, he gets a super max deal. The the you know the BRI is going up anyway. He's going to get 230 million, and then you're going to say, well, he's the first player, the youngest player to get. Yeah. I mean, it's useful in the sense of talent value. I just think it's useless because it's just, you know, it's just the luck of the draw having that age, you know, in my opinion. Yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's kind of useless because everyone knew he was going to get that deal and I, I think age irrelevant. He just, just got lucky with the age and he's been a professional for, what, almost a decade now anyway. So, um, I think that one's a useless one, but I thought it was interesting. What do you have, fact or fake news? Folks, Golden State in a, in a you know, sort of a weird spot these days. 
we talk about it all the time. Got a good roster, you know, got an okay roster, got young players, got their guys coming back, hopefully mending from the injuries. Do they go with the same basically top 10 players on their roster, including the guys that are coming back and then the new draftees? Or do they make a big move before trade deadline? Do you think that they're going to be okay with the young guys and this and – or are they going to make a move? Before the deadlines, that's February. Oh, yeah, so wow. do they do they stick with – they will stick with the top 10 players on their roster without making a major move before the trade deadline. Fake news. I think they'll make a. I think they'll make a move. Someone from that ten is going to have to go because I think they. They. There may be. A, I don't know. The Eagle Dallas signing is good for him, but he's getting older. Yeah, some shooting at the five spot maybe is probably the one place that they can kind of um, improve. You know, Wiseman can kind of. He's streaky from there, but he's not a bulk three point shooter or a space three point shooter. So I would say, yeah, I would say um, they're going to make a move. So fake news. So they're going to. They're going to probably look to to ramp up that roster a little bit and make a championship push. And, and I think something's, something's brewing there. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't think they're going to ride or die. Look, with their roster as it stands, it's probably still going to be very good pending Clay's health um, and, uh-huh. and Steph signing and all that. And But they're probably one good veteran piece or, or mid-tier star away from from um, getting better, in my opinion. Yeah, and they just signed Curry to that big deal too. I, I think that – I think they're going to make a move. I, I – I don't think Kerr's going to be able to handle that well with young with those young guys uh, with Wiseman and those and, and the new draftees. I think that they're going to make a move. I, I do, and I think you can get a pretty good player for that. We've already discussed packages and all that stuff. We don't have to do that, but that's uh, well. They have the pieces to do yeah. it. They have the pieces now to do it. Yeah, they seven, they've got the seven and fourteen, which they've, they've you know used their picks now on. Wiggins is always in there somewhere. So Ben Simmons has come up, you know. So who knows? If I'm Washington. Look, you know, that's going to be a rough deal. Kuzma, Beal. Nah, yeah, they're, you they're know, not doing much down there. Yeah, I'm telling you. I, like, if I'm them, Golden State will be would be very, very – like, we talked about this, you know, three months ago. I think they're going to be – they're going to be wanting to make a move. I think you can get – I think you can get all three of those guys off their roster. I do, to get Beal. I think you can get – I think you can get Wiseman and the two picks, and then you have to you'd have to take Wiggins back. I think that they would do that to get Bradley Beal that extra score and that extra superstar, you know, to to put with those guys. I think that you can get that. Now you might have to work it out financially. Add a third team. I don't know any of that lingo, but I think that's a, a move that they're going to be able to make. We'll watch that space. Yes, sir. Okay, Lakers, Westbrook, LeBron James, and Anthony Davis will play more than 75% of their games this season combined. Oh, wow. I think I think Westbrook will get it. Davis hasn't had a healthy year for a while and LeBron's getting older. So, 75, I'm not great at math, but of 82 games, what is that? Uh, 60-odd games, So, 82 right? games times three is 246. So, they have to play- Oh, combined, yeah. yeah. So, so, it's 60-odd, 64, five um, games, something like that, right? Yeah. Oh, it's, around, it's around the 60s, let's just say. So, let's just call it at 6, 12, 18. So, 180-odd 100, games. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'd, I'd say fake news. I mean, they're getting older. And their rost- the problem is their roster's older. So, where I see the issue being is that even if they don't get hurt early and one of their backup bench older guys does, 
that then means what? They're going to have to play more minutes. So that that's what that's what my concern is with this roster. They don't have any young, much young go-getters that are going to take big minutes to relieve those veterans. Um, and a few of those veterans go down early and then LeBron's all, all of a sudden having to carry the load more and AD is and whatnot. And they don't have, you know, Gasol's kind of breaking down from the center position. So you're going to have to move AD to the five a lot. I think with their small ball lineups, he hates the five. And that's when, when he generally gets hurt. He's at the five spot, unfortunately, getting knocks and whatever. So yeah, um, I mean, uh, I think it's I think it's fake news. They'll be they'll be under that number. Yeah, I say they're under two. I think they're going to rest those guys. They're going to need those guys for the playoffs. And I don't think they're going to care about seeding all that much as long as they can get. Uh, I think you know, obviously they don't want to do what they did this year, but I think they want to get in. I know they're favored to win the championship, but I think they just want to get in that top four. You know, to get home court and then you know, and then do what they got to do on their home court throughout the playoffs. So I think even if it's going to sort of mess with their number one seeding or what have you, go to two or go to three, I think they're going to sacrifice that to keep those guys healthy because you don't want that. They don't want them running out of gas, you know, to come playoff time. Yep. Folks, Boston has been a little lethargic in the off season, you know, in, in playoff, you know, I mean, in free agency. Obviously, they tried, they made the move for Horford to try to free up money next summer. They did the same thing, you know, try, they're not, they let Fournier go same way because they're going to have, they're going to have some money. I think 30 plus million, in my opinion, um, in next year in money. But they still got two young superstars or so-called superstars that have, you know, that sort of are getting a little bit impatient, especially with how the team lasted last year. You know, losing in the first round. Does the Boston Celtics make it out of the first round with this roster? Ooh, I was. I thought your question was going to be, have they been quiet? And I'd say fact because I think they are. They are building <laughs> yeah. towards, like you said, next season. So that that would be strategic. Do they get out of the first round with this roster? Fake news. They don't. I don't think they do. I think um, even though the East isn't a powerhouse, there's a lot of competitive teams. I think Charlotte will be better. Again, New York still up there. Chicago will be better. So we'll see a bit more out of them. So um, then obviously Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Philadelphia. Even you know, I'd even put. Whew, I mean, Boston in the same realm down the bottom somewhere, you know, as, as, as probably- I mean, they finished seventh, folks. They finished seventh last year and they had Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier, even though we got them after trade deadline. So, now you're at seven, okay? Indiana uh, didn't necessarily get better in the offseason, but they sort of stayed okay. You know, Washington- yeah, you say Charlotte got better, Chicago got much better. They might get a play-in. Maybe if they're lucky, they might scrape at 9 or 10 at, at best. That's a successful year for them, in my opinion. I don't think they're making the eight tr- traditional way. Yeah. But, you know, they are, you know, the guru of Stevens now in the front office. Maybe he'll be coaching from the from the skybox in the arena. So, who knows? Um, and it's let's not forget a rookie head coach. So there's there's a lot yeah. a lot that can go wrong and a lot that can go well, but I I, I take the under I say they're not they're not going to get out of the first round. You? Yeah, I, I take the under. I say fake things too. They will not get out of the first round. Easy. All right, let's welcome our guest. All right, I'd like to welcome a special guest, former teammate of mine, Taro Bogues, um, David Anderson. The uh, few nicknames, the mayor of Frankston's, the first one, and the other one is GQ. So, Pro, give him a warm welcome. Dave, what's up, brother? How the fuck you doing today? <laughs> doing pretty good. <laughs> See, you already dropping the F-bombs. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's good. Keeps it real. No doubt. So, Dave and I played together for numerous campaigns with the Boomers. I didn't know much about you 
at all until 2004 in Athens. Um, so we'll get into it a bit later, but David had left Australia at a pretty early age, was kind of the unknown. I was just yeah. coming into the national team program, so he probably didn't know much about me. But the other nickname he had was GQ. And <laughs> the reason why was pretty well spelled out. The first time I met him, he had the, the Ray-Ban aviators, the, the diamond <laughs> earring, the frosted tips hair, blue eyes, you know, just, just hey, GQ. You what know you, about the frosted tips yeah, hair. What you see stuff. on the front cover of GQ. So that was your other nickname. But um, welcome to the show, Dave. What, what have you been up to lately, man? What's going on? Uh, nothing too much. I've just been uh, laying low, keeping out of trouble. You know, we're kind of in lockdown, so we can't really do too much around here. I've got some investments, things I'm looking after, but after the uh, Melbourne United stint, grabbing another championship to the cabinet uh just been taking it easy a bit so yeah by family by time taking another championship we'll just run through so i didn't know <laughs> by the way i didn't know your middle name was emil emil yes danish after my grandfather nice, my nice. Dad's and, and of course you have a danish passport which we'll talk about later which which was very true, useful true. for you but you're one of the most winningest exports when it comes to australian basketball true. and the reason why i want to talk to you and get you on the show is because outside of the basketball community in australia you're not really that well known because you played in Europe at a time where it wasn't as accessible to Australians to watch overseas. You know, EuroLeague games aren't on TV. We'll run through where you've played. You see, obviously, you started the Frankston Blues in the, in the mid-90s. You went to the AIS. You've been Wollongong Herc Hawks in the late uh, 90s. Then go over yep. to Kinder Bologna as a, how old were you, 17? I was 18. 18-year-old signed with Kinder Bologna. Not a word of Italian at that time? Uh, not a word when I started, but yeah. I have learnt and I still do speak Pretty fluently. So. Kinder Bologna, then on to Montepeschi, Montepeschi, uh, Siena, Siena, Cesca, Moscow, yeah. FC Barcelona in 2008-2009, then the Houston Rockets, you had an NBA stint uh, yep. at Houston, Toronto and New Orleans for two to three years, two seasons, then yeah. went back to Siena, yep. bankrupted him again after you left of course, <laughs> um, Fenerbahce, 12-13, um, SIG Strasbourg, then you went to Asvel in France, right? Yeah, um, that's true. That's back, to, back to Melbourne United, back to Asvel again. Yeah, Illawarra Hawks, where we got to play against each other when I was with the Kings from 2018 to, yeah, to, to 2020. Finally. Back to Strasbourg again, then the infamous return of the Frankston Blues, full circle, <laughs> and then winning a, a championship with Melbourne United. Yeah. So, a very storied career. And before you want to butt in, Pro, I'm just going to go through this man's one of the most winningest gentlemen around Australian basketball, two time NBL yeah. champion. Yeah. Three-time EuroLeague champion, all EuroLeague first team, Spanish League champion, three times Italian League champion, three times Italian Cup winner, Italian Super Cup winner, Italian League's fi League Finals MVP, Italian Cup MVP, four-time Russian League champion, yeah. three-time Russian Cup winner, Turkish Cup winner, Turkish Cup final MVP, French League champion, French League All-Star game, Albert Schweitzer tournament MVP. So, wherever Ooh. you go, you seem to win, Dave. Bit of a talisman some people would say i'm the lucky charm a lot of uh teams probably did bring me in for that thing because uh yeah i know how to glue guys together get everyone working on the same page and um yeah it's worked well obviously over the year been fortunate great coaches great players great teammates and uh just things blended together so it's one of those things you just kind of do what you can and seize the opportunities and i was lucky over my career just to be able to do it all so yeah pro what do you know about dave from your scouting network <laughs> God damn, I know too much about Dave, actually. Oh, that's so, a good thing to hear. Yeah, so when he played in Bologna, yeah. when I worked for Tim Grover, I worked out a guy named Rashad Griffith yeah, that was one Chad. of your teammates. He was my roommate back exactly. in Kinder Bologna. Big seven-foot dude. Yeah, so he, um, he was a big dude, teddy bear, <laughs> you know, like 
went to Wisconsin, second round pick, folks. Never never went to the NBA. One of the best players in the, in the country in high school, and then played with David. Yeah. And David also played with Ginobili mm-hmm. when he was over in Bologna. And I ha- actually had him on my fantasy team. I'm the only fucking American in the history of America to play Euroleague fantasy. I had him <laughs> in. It was it's a lo- I got a love hate thing with David. He saved me in 0506. Because he averaged something like 15 and 6, I think. Yeah. So, he was a cheap pickup and he fucking produced like a motherfucker. <laughs> the second time, he fucked me and bent me over. Let me see. When he played for Barcelona, I was expecting big things. He did win a championship, no doubt about he it. He won a cheaper win to Final Four. I, was, I bowled out that Final Four, too. I had like 20 points on but both teams. Yeah, he didn't win. I wasn't a but huge fan, fantasy I know. I'm not a fantasy yeah. guy player. I'm more of a big time, you know, get it done in the big games, you know, <laughs> stat lines, stat lines, not really feeling. Yeah, you're playing. I got nothing against your playing. You're a fucking solid player, pure winner. But on my fantasy league, you were great for me in 04. Yeah. Not so great for me uh, when you went to Barcelona. But I mean, yeah. what I want to know, Bogue, seriously, David, you know, for me, like playing with Ginobili, playing – you know, yeah. playing with Rigadu, playing the Seska Moscow with those great teams at Holden. Because when I when I scout when I started in basketball, David, I was a scout for the Boston Celtics, and I handled our international stuff. So I would watch about 15, 20 Euroleague games a week. Yeah. You know, on VC, you know, on tapes and DVDs and stuff. Yeah. And I loved that Seska team that you were on. And then Bologna, I just followed before I got into the league, and just you know, playing like how was it to play with like Ginobili and those guys early on in your career as a young kid and sort of growing up through that sort of process. Well, it was great. I mean, you know, Ginobili back then that was when he was coming up. He was just a young fella. You know, he played in Reggio Calabria the season before, which is like a medium level. Italian league team and they were actually made to play us and we played against him in a five game series to go through and um, that's when he they kind of signed him after that and he was just you know he was young he was learning the ropes and but he came out exploding that year and you know he I think he was EuroLeague final MVP you know he and we won everything we won the, the Italian Cup the Italian league and the EuroLeague so it was it was a huge year and to play with him then and see him because he was growing up quick and he wasn't like a he was a great person too. We used to eat pre-games every every time before the game. We go to this little Italian restaurant near to where he was, and uh, we'd always eat and stuff and catch up a lot. And it was cool. He was a real good guy to hang out with on off the court as well as on the court. And yeah, just great working ethic. Great at uh, you know being a good teammate. Never really demanded like things. It wasn't like a superstar. Like oh, I need the ball twenty times. It was more like he just gets his gets his work in and, and does what he needs to win. And the other guys on the team, like, you know, Rashad, he's, he was a massive, he was a superstar. I mean, for us, big he kid. was like the pillar. You know, he's a big, big moving <laughs> man, just um, just killed it in the center. And I learned a lot from him because I had to bash up against him in training. And I was just a skinny, you know, 6'11", 7-foot guy. And I had to stretch him yep. out. It was like playing against Shaq. So, you had to get creative to to, to play against him in training. But... But actually, that year was a it was a great. You know, I was still young. I was nineteen, I think, that year, and um, we had a young team. We had Marco Yaric as well, one of the Yugoslavian superstars. He played yep. in the NBA. Um, Antoine Rigaudot, yep. the, the king of France, we called him in in Bologna. Yeah, Bellinelli too. Bellinelli was on the team. He was a young fellow. He was only sixteen, I think, back then. So I've told people about that because they're like, "Oh, you played with Bellinelli." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to play way back in the day." So, um, yep. yeah. I all these guys I've played with along the time and it's uh, you see him go on and you're like, wow, it, it's great. It's 
it's amazing to watch them step up and get better and better. So, but um, yeah, that team was special. Like I said, we won the what do they call that? The King's King's Crown or whatever it is. I think it's the three championships, everything you can, and and it was a it was a crazy year. But um, and then that led into like other things, and obviously kept going strong. So yeah, good times. Yeah, that Seska Moscow team too. Now you come with like what Marcus Brown and Antonio Granger and Holden. Yep. That was when I got there. The first year, they, we stacked it up because we had the final four was in Moscow that year. And we actually lost the final four to Louis Scholar and Tao Victoria, or they were called Tao Ceramica Victoria. That was their sponsor back then. It was in Moscow. I remember the semifinal. We lost the game and man, you should have seen it. It was like, it was like D-Day. They just, everyone was just terrible like guys were thinking the, the general manager or the director or president of the team came in after the game he threw his phone against the wall smashed it like everyone was seeing like it was just it was the whole world crumbled and we only lost like three games a whole season and two of them were at the final four so they were just you were a super team it was a super team like you should have seen this was like yeah. some some uh rocky stuff you know drago and they're yeah. testing him and stuff like that we were doing all these crazy <laughs> testing like they had the oxygen tanks on us they were drug like blood testing us every three four weeks to make sure we were all good and it was um it was a hell of a ride that season like i said we lost i want to say the two game one in the top 16 and then like at the final four, we lost a couple. And the Russian League, I don't think we lost. We went on a 35-game winning streak throughout the, through the start of the season. And it was, um, yeah, it was on. And that was, it was actually a great year for me personally, too. I was, I was stepping up. I think I made EuroLeague All-Star five that year. But yeah, it was, uh, obviously disappointing to lose that final four and just crushed everyone. Let's circle back, Price. I, I, I want to start this. You can get to your EuroLeague grilling later, but I want to start <laughs> your, your journey just for the – I mean, there's yeah. a lot of kids that listen to the podcast. Um, no, they, have to, they have to mute out half a pro, but they, they, they listen. Kids be dropping F-bombs too, yeah. mate. You got to watch out. <laughs> These kids have got some, some, some mouth on them now. Yeah, we blame pro for all that. Yeah. No question. So, your journey wasn't – it wasn't a pathway taken by very many, um, no. especially back then, right? Yeah. Um, now, maybe a little bit more, but it's still not really one that many Australian kids take. So, yeah. you, you went to the AIS, you played a, a season professionally yeah. with the Wollongong Hawks, but you, you, I read that you t- you had some pretty big college offers. Um, yeah. And yeah. UCLA, Arizona, I anyone UCLA, else? UCLA, Arizona. There was a couple others as well. I can't remember. Those are the big ones. I remember talking to them. Luke Olsen was the coach back then. That was pre-signing with Wollongong, right? This was pre-signing. But, you know, for me, I kind of, you know, NBL was pretty big back then too. In the 90s, you got to remember, NBL was like big time. You know, we were earning. I remember they brought in a special rookie cap trying to, Smother, smothering my money the, the down. David yes. Anderson rule. Yeah, because oh I was like, goodness. you know, I was competing against guys like Paul Gazzola in, in the Schweizer tournament. I got the MVP that time and he beat us because they bloody, they won the game, the gold, you know, championship game. But um, so I was, you know, stepping up. I was, my game was elevating and I was getting interest overseas as well. So, and the Euro League. So then the NBL brought in this cap thing, 40 grand, you know, cap. And I signed. I remember I had to get the deal done before midnight to get the cap came in. Before the the cap came in. (laughs) And I don't know if you know, I signed with the Magic originally, Southeast Melbourne Magic. And then it all flipped on itself because the Magic merged with uh, the Giants Giants to make the Titans. And I got squeezed out of that deal. Gorge was a coach. I remember he came down and visited me after and it was all doom and gloom and kind of sorry, man. He still to this day apologizes <laughs> and stuff my, to my old man mainly. So, but, um, yeah. So then I was off to Wollongong, but yeah, I, I had the chances to go to college ball, but. 
for me, it was more, I wanted to become a pro. I felt like I was that kind of player. I didn't want to go to the college system and get stuck. I mean, you're, a, I was a different kind of big too. I was more of a flexible big, I call it like a stretch big. I could move, I could play more offense. I wasn't really a banger as such. And back then the bangers were big. Like, I mean, I'd always play against huge Americans that were just like shoulders wider than me, bodies heavier than me, just smashing against them. And I had to get real creative with my game just to succeed. So it isn't until recently, like you get these long, lanky, skilled it's changing, bigs. Yeah. It's changed. So for me, I didn't want to get stuck in that shoe hole, you know, you know, college system where I'd be like, you got to become a banger, you got to screen roll, which would have happened, yeah, which, which would've would've happened. probably happened. So, yeah. so I felt like that's why I took my trade to a pro, and I didn't mind. Were you the, close to college at all, or not? Not really. Nah, not really. I had a couple of conversations. Like I said, I didn't do any visits. I probably yeah. should have because I hear they're hell fun. <laughs> As a young fella, um, as a young way fella, but nah, I just kind of it all happens pretty quick, and I kind of you know just rolled out into being a pro. I felt like I wanted to you know earn money, and and always had that kind of business hat on. So I was like, yeah, I'll earn some money. I don't really like school that much. I mean, I wasn't that guy who was going to school and academic yeah. and stuff like that either. So, what's well, no secret, pro, that Wollongong, Wollongong Hawks are still in financial trouble twenty years later after uh, David Anderson's <laughs> contract. Hey, man, that cost me money because I signed with the Magic. I could have signed with them originally, but I went to the Magic and then came back to them for a discounted price. So, I ain't bankrupt there. So then, when did the? How did the whole? Going over Europe thing come about because it's kind of it's kind of a strange yeah. deal. I'm sure they sh saw you at Sch yeah. Schweizer, but but was that network created while you were in Wollongong or from the Albert Schweitzer tournament well, or did you? Yeah, a bit bit of both. Probably because I played a lot of tours with the junior teams. You probably did quite a few as well yeah. in Europe and stuff. So they they see you and you get on the scouting reports. And and when I chose my agent, I remember I could have gone with an Australian guy or this American, and originally it was Leon Rose. You know, he's he's oh, since. Yeah. He's gone on to big things now. I think, you know, he's like the president. Return your call anymore? New York Knicks. No, he does actually. <laughs> he's my man because I, oh, I used to always give him a bit of crap because, you know, when I'd be overseas or, you know, weathering down, I'd be like, oh, you don't want to talk to me because he signed some big players. Yeah, like, he originally. Had a big so, for a while. yeah, he had like, you know, Eddie Jones, these guys, Carmelo, Chris Ball, these like massive stars. So I used to call him up once in a while and be like, hey, man, you don't answer my calls. He always voicemail and call me back. But we still talk anyway. Long story short, I got Leon Rose as my agent and he had obviously the the past, the wings to spread to Europe and other parts of the world. And so basically he, as I turned pro, he knew that I could get a Danish passport and a lot of the other teams around the world, my agent, my sub-agent, Kenny Grant as well, they worked in partnership and they knew that I could become a European citizen or, you know, play with a European passport, which means you'd like a local. Which is huge for, yeah. for teams because they back then, it was, was it only two internationals two back then? Two international or even two Americans or two, like Yugoslavia yeah. then and all those Eastern Bloc, well, they were all regarded as imports too when I first yeah. got over there. So yeah. you couldn't have like, now you can have like a couple of Serbs or whatever and Croatian and then- So hugely valuable if you didn't have that, Euro passport it probably would have been very hard to get over. Would have been hard. I would have been an import. Like I know Matty Nielsen came over a few years down the track, and he was regarded as an import. Yeah. You know, but he was already killing in NBL, being NBL MVP and blah yep. blah blah. But for me playing that, I was I was regarded as a European. So even on Euroleague teams, I was European, and it just helped out a lot. And obviously, it also cultured me. I don't get it twisted. I mean, I'm I'm Australian, but. I have the European background. I got a lot of family in Denmark. So when I went to Europe, I was open to that. And that's probably one of the reasons why I was successful in Europe. I was culturally open. Like, you know, I learned Italian. I tried to fit in every time I went to a different nation, like, you know, Russia or 
France. It's kind of an oxymoron being from Frankston. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's pretty, uh, <laughs> it is. But in saying that, you, you get out of Frankston, but you always go back. So it's a great part of the world. But no, it was it was one of those things. So for me, it was a totally different path, you know, for me to go overseas in Europe. But it, it had few things to factor in. Obviously, the passport that came about in my first year in Wollongong. So, you know, around Christmas time, I think it was, or January, you know, this is mid-season. We're pursuing my passport because my agent's saying, listen, you've got a lot of interest from overseas. You could sign a, a decent deal over there and stuff. So I was like, all right. And then I was playing in the under-20 world champs in 99 so i was um what do you call it i just followed that a little bit further and then towards the end of the season i got my passport and my agent secured this massive deal with kinder bologna which was like a four-year deal you know for i think it was like a couple million dollars or something unheard of money so it was like you know i was like wow of course i'm gonna go and kinder bologna was like one of the best teams in Europe then. So it was a great chance for me to learn, for me to be, you know, to grow as a player and obviously earn some really good coin. Yeah, and the culture piece I think is huge as well for kids, you know, learn, learning the language, different yeah, foods. Definitely. Um, you're more you it know, was you're more Euro to me than you are Australian, in my opinion. Definitely. Just, just I mean, I've, the world. Well, I've lived over there for 15, 16, 17, 18 years and like 20, what, 23 years playing as a pro. So, yeah, I adjusted well to it. I've always been, you know, it was a bit of advice from Coach Messina, actually. I remember sitting down the first year we got there, he put a list up on, you know, these successful players and these not-so-successful ones. And he was like, the demeanor, the lesson here is these guys tried to learn Italian and try to fit into the culture. These guys had no chance, you know, I hate to say it, but some of these Americans, they just come over, they want to earn a Pit check stop. Yep, stop. and get out of there. Whereas for me, it was like, no, I signed a four-year deal. I committed. I got a tutor. I got things. I was learning Italian. I was lucky I had my brother with me, Shui, my one-year older brother, lived with me while I was young. So kind of that kept me, you know, level-headed as well. Um, so all these fact factors come into it and I enjoyed it. I really like thrived in that kind of scenario. European basketball suited me a lot too. Yeah, no doubt. And just just with skills, the skill level um, that you had it was just a perfect fit. But it's just a testament to um, like I didn't, I never, I, I'd never heard of you as a kid. Um, yeah, I mean back then the internet wasn't really. Well, we around. didn't have internet. You know, remember it was dial-up stuff back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, didn't, you didn't have things. I used to have to write letters to friends back in Australia. Like, yeah, you know, writing letters, the calling cards. There was no FaceTime or this kind of stuff. It was all pretty remote. But then, yeah, the only the only reason I knew your name was just because it was on an AIS locker, really, like because with all, that bogus ass picture of me. Yeah, all, all the lockers <laughs> that the AIS have, probably they have every guy that's been there, and that's whatever true. locker you get, it has every guy that's had that locker. So that kind of we all what heard number your name. Were they, was four, yeah, yeah was number four. Uh, I can't even remember. Andrew Luke. I changed I halfway through, but um, I just remember that was we didn't really know the story. It wasn't really told to us about your journey and. Yeah. Like I said, I only ran into you in, in 2004 when you- um, When we met for the Olympics. You yeah. joined us halfway through the Olympics. And we're like, yeah. who the hell is this dude? Because everyone, we, we didn't know. And so, pro, we go to the 2004 Athens Olympics. It's yeah. my first year and, and, and we're doing all this prep stuff and, and Dave doesn't come to the prep stuff because you were in the midst of signing the Seska deal, right? I was, yeah, I was playing finals with the Montepaschi right. Siena. Yeah. We were winning the championship. It was their first time, oh, second year in first division Italian and they were, we're on top of the league and we're- 
in line to win the thing and I'm balling out. So, yeah, it was like we were going. I missed all the preparation yeah, well, I mean, Who stuff. the hell is this dude? And then, then you still made the 12 without coming to camp, essentially, because yeah. you made the, the, the pre-Euro tour. Yeah, the Euro tour. And everyone was like, this guy must be really good. So, I remember yeah. all the pub and we'd, we'd never heard about you. And then, yeah, that was the first time we'd met him. I remember yeah. rolled into – I remember it was like a training camp in Italy somewhere, in Pesaro or something yeah, it like was, that. Yeah, remember? Yeah. And yeah, yeah. we were out there. So, yeah, I remember coming in and it was like – I mean, I came off – Put things short, I was in the finals campaign and I had the manager of the team telling me he wanted me to fly out like a day after the finals game. And I was like, to you Australia. serious? To Australia <laughs> to come back to a camp. But I was like, bro, are you serious? Like, I've got a – like, we're about to win the Italian championship first time for this team and it's massive and I'm playing well. Like, And there's no way I'm going to jump on a plane for 24 hours, come to training camp for like five days come straight. Back. And then come back with you guys two days later. I was like, I'll meet you here, you know, but uh, yeah. let me talk to – because Gorge didn't really know me much either. I mean, I think he – Shane Hill might have got in his ear a bit because, you know, he knew Europe and knew what the hell was going on. And then when he saw that we won the championship and I was MVP of the final series, he was kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, I think uh, we should really look at him. He's big time, you know. Yeah. So – and we went to the final four. That's another thing that year with Siena. It was huge. That, that year for Siena, we – you know, did some nowhere, crazy right? things like, yes, you know, it was like I said, second year in t uh, Italian first division. We went final four in Israel and uh, it won the Italian championship. So it was a big year. And like I said, moving transitioning into that Olympic campaign was hard. And yeah, uh, touche on you too. I didn't know Jack, yeah. <laughs> Jack shit about you. All I knew was you were some big dude playing in Utah. I think it was at the time. And, and I was like, oh, who's this guy? Like, look at him. Then yeah, we started playing. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's pretty fucking good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had some battles. Yeah. Probably you got anything? Yeah, I think I call bullshit on this whole Italian thing. I just think he wanted to be closer to Gucci and fucking Armani and go, you know, <laughs> it's be Mr. True. Fucking GQ. It's true. Yeah, well, I came shit. out of Frankston, mate. You'd be proud. I didn't have no Gucci or nothing. I got to Bologna. And How do we explain Frankston to pro? Oh, wow. I don't know. It's hard to – it's actually a beautiful place to live, but it's pretty rough. You know, I grew up with some – questionable people but you know so nah. Frankston's ah. about an hour from the city or 50 minutes as Dave says 58 minutes right yeah a lot of community <laughs> houses I suppose is the way to put it but, but it's in a beautiful part of Melbourne it's yeah. on the water it's, it's there's a beach but then there's like a there's really rough parts of it yeah um, there is there's rough parts and then really like good anywhere. parts exactly yeah, like it's, it's, some it's got people, a bad stigma yeah a lot of people hang shit on it like I remember like even Gorgian coming down to visit me after the whole you know cut out of the deal thing he's um he was like Franks and oh god is that even metro like is that country what are you on there and I'm like yeah it's still it's regarded as metro mate and it's not that far and da 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 but yeah everyone who comes down this way they just say it's beautiful and it is beautiful it's on the beach and it's all that but but you know there is a lot of humble beginnings like people are you know Regard as wealthy, South there. Central Melbourne, a of, I guess. Bit of drug problems as well in the community. Had the shoot, had the legal uh, drug house there. I don't yeah. know if it's still there. Uh, I don't know, probably. Is. I mean, yeah, yeah there was a legal a place you could shoot up legally. Pro, they had a mm. little house, but um, yeah, it's kind of a, a suburb that has a has a bad stigma about it. Kind exactly. of like um, Yobbo, which would be like a hick kind of uh, yeah, stigma kind about of it. Trailer park uh, but, kind of stigma, but yeah. it's on a beautiful beautiful part of melbourne you know and there's good parts and bad parts and if you if pro if you came and visited and i put you in franks and you'd think it's beautiful um, yeah. because you wouldn't know the stigmas and it is and it. there's like you said there's only there's some bad areas which give it a the bad stigma and there's some bad apples that ruin it for a lot of others but in in hindsight like i wouldn't grow up anywhere else because it's it's a great little spot and but yeah some people are a bit like oh i wouldn't drive around franks late at night kind of thing and i'm like well it's yeah. fine 
doesn't worry me. Yeah, I heard. I heard when you you got Uber in Melbourne. I guess you got an armored car uh, option, you know, so, <laughs> so you don't get shot. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's only in Moscow, mate. <laughs> and leading yeah. on to Moscow, actually, that's what I wanted to ask you. You've got some. Um, you've had some crazy experiences, obviously playing all around the world. Mm-hmm. Give us a few of your. Have you had any life-threatening experiences like with fans pre or post-game or on the road or anything that you thought like, ooh, this is a bit kind of testy, like I want to kind of- We need to stay in the locker room for 30 extra minutes or anything like Because I've heard stories oh. from like, Alex Marriage has some crazy stories yeah, from Serbian Yeah, I know where he got Serbian games. They're, they're a bit wilder there. I mean, yeah, you get the crazy European fans, but it's not really life-threatening. I mean, it'd take a fair bit to rattle me in that sense. But yeah, no, nah, we- I remember a couple of times, like, we used to always get police escorts to games. Like, a lot of people didn't know about this stuff. Like, we'd be flying through cities like Athens with police escorts or, you know, bus and stuff. And, you know, because when you're playing against Olympiacos and Panathinaikos, they're always, you know, they're always, you know, slamming. They've got the flares at the game. They're throwing coins, heating up crap, you know. So, you always got to be on your toes because you don't want to cop a coin in the head because that'll put you out for most of the game. <laughs> Especially nowadays. They'd probably have you do that concussion testing thing. You'd be done for like two weeks in Australia. Yeah. But no, nah, I've seen teammates cop them in the head and stuff like that. And you always got the barricades. But nothing where like a fan jumped over and wanted to fight me because, you know, that usually doesn't end well. Like, you know, look what happened to Ronald Artes, that kind of shit. So. Yeah. Well, Shane Hill tells a story that he he was, was it was it Greece or Italy? Did he play in Italy? He, play- he played Italy as well. Was Italy for or a Greece? Stint. And he was with he, a team Greece. that was on the brink of relegation. And he said that- um, so they, Imola. Yeah, they had their like, final game. They had to win to stay alive, to stay in the first division and they really? lost. Oh, jeez. And he says- they gone out to the car park to drive out and all like it was one of those car parks where there was an elevated part for the fans to walk around and the yeah. car park was kind of under okay oh, and they all had eggs and he oh. says as soon as, as soon as players from their own team were walking out they were just That's- getting pelted with eggs really and they get to jump in their car real quick full of eggs and then as they drove out pelted with eggs so uh, like, that's you know the, f- the fans are passionate i get to that like i mean i wouldn't say we never got pelted with eggs i mean there was always times when they give you crap and stuff like that but the funny one in italy we used to crack me up at the start of the season so we played in reggio calabria again the one that Ginobili played in the first game of the season we go and i start the game you know circled around jump ball da, da. all of a sudden all the fans start launching dunny roll on the court like toilet paper just <laughs> thousands like hundreds and thousands of these rolls of toilet just keep flying on for like you know five minutes and i guess the floor sweepers are ready for it because they're like out there quick with their floor wipers just pushing them all off the court and da, da, da. and it delays the game for like 15 20 minutes and then all of a sudden as soon as you're about to go against someone else throws another one just to and what was the mindset was it tradition or something it's it? just a tradition i think it's like for the start of the season you know da, da, da. it wasn't like you know a bad thing you don't feel bad but but like i said they're a lot more passionate they're chanting they're singing they're doing crazy things Probably the only the scary one I do remember kind of was going to play the final four in Israel with Siena that year of the Athens Olympics, 2004. I remember rocking in there. So we flew. Our fans didn't go because this is when Israel was in war pretty much. And we rocked in. We had separate buses straight off the plane that had snipers like, and security, full security detail with machine guns escorting us off the plane. Passport checks right at our bus. Team bus was right there. So this is final four. So you got the four best EuroLeague teams in. And we're going along the freeway and they're shutting off everything. Like we're the presidents of bloody Israel coming through and they get to the hotel. We're staying at the Hilton down in, you know, on, on Tel Aviv or whatever it is. And it's like, yeah, you see the snipers up on the top and you're kind of thinking to yourself, Jesus, what the hell are we gotten into here? Nothing bad ever happened. It was just like, you know, 
they had to put on their measures in case. So it's still confronting though, right? Oh, Coming mate. from Australia, we, yeah. we don't we don't see a gun ever, really, nah. unless you, you know, you're seeing like snipers and stuff on top of buildings and shit like this. So that was like it was eye opening. Definitely, there was a lot of those kind of things. Thing, but in terms of actually like going to myself, oh my god, I'm going to die. Well, not so much die, but you know, yeah, we'll, we'll put like, sauce well, on it. But just just <laughs> as far as like, hey, we've been recommended to you know, like I think Alex played a game where they're like, you guys need to stay in the locker room for an hour after the game. Don't come out. Yeah, we're going to wait. That for- That would have been that partisan. Yeah, we're going to wait fans to clear out. I know, I know a friend of mine. I think it was Damir Makota. Um, he said that when he played for Tavona mm-hmm. Zagreb, whenever they'd play in Serbia against Partizan or Red Star, and they'd bus over, there would be cars at the at the border of of the countries that would follow the bus and be throwing rocks at them through their car like really hanging out of the car windows <laughs> pelting rocks yeah he said he then got to um to the hotel in belgrade and they had their ultra fans on the street with drums and the whole night really so these Just- dudes couldn't sleep <laughs> he said the whole night they were chanting and like, police can't ask they didn't police didn't even care yeah and they're just chanting the whole night night before game day so these guys yeah. are getting like one hour sleep like yeah. rolling into the game and just just notorious it's for- crazy shit. yeah we got that a bit in turkey as well with Eastern fire alarms. yeah they always do like trying to stir <laughs> you. we used to get the prank calls to the hotels too so you'd be trying to have a siesta on game day and then you get these guys calling up and just like screaming down the road no fuck you out is it no if you have a bad game i'll kill you you're like what the hell dude you hang up and then like you, you how does a hotel let the call come through i don't know yeah, but yeah, anyway yeah. just like those little kind of pesky things it didn't really worry me too much so yeah but yeah the fans are good i actually didn't i like the passionate fans like that they were fun like some of the the way they chant the way they sing your songs and do that kind of stuff it really makes you want to play better and do better i mean it is it's a double-sided sword because then if you do lose <laughs> they're passionate too, they're yeah, bloody like- they're ripping you one and they're telling you you can't you literally can't go out and eat and stuff like that but then if you win they're like oh you're the, you're the king like so it's like <laughs> wow yeah this is awesome but but yeah some places you got to be a bit wary of like crazy fans i heard the greek ones are probably the worst like the olympiakos panathinaikos rivalry was massive yeah and- you would have heard about that, wouldn't you, bro? Yeah, for sure. I just got back from Greece uh, a few weeks ago, and you know they say it's just deadly. Like those yeah. those fans and those games are ridiculous. I remember in Italy, actually, in '04, I want to say it was. I went over to scout when I was in Boston. I, I worked a Treviso big man camp and ah, then yep, the Euro camp. Yeah, yeah, and the Euro camp. A couple of stories out of that. First, we went to see Benetton. Versus Carlos Delfino. I forgot the team he played for. He might have played Bologna. I'm not sure of the team. Yeah, I but think anyway, he was 42, though. He was in 42 at Bologna. 42, though. Cross time rival of what my team was. Kinder so, was Kinder in 42, though. They had, it was a playoff game. It was like middle of June and like late June, actually. And they had Armored Gods folks in the, in the, Visitor section, all the way down the aisle, all the way yeah. down the uh, aisle, yeah, that's and stamp, then yeah. with machine guns, and they were there was guys with like no no shirt on, painted faces, just giving the arm and finger to the opposing <laughs> fans, yeah. and didn't even watch the fucking game. No, they and then don't. after the game, they threw M80s on the court. We had to get escorted out. We thought I thought I was gonna die. Actually, right. I mean, it was it was pretty. It was a, well, the scariest I've ever been. Besides missing a meal last, you know, a couple of years ago, <laughs> that was probably the scariest I've ever been. 
yeah. ever. Like N eighties, like borderline dynamite on the courts. Yeah, it was crazy. They're true. Great That's, game. I remember the yeah. The, they'd always section off a, a part of the stadium, so you had the big you know five thousand six thousand seat stadium, and they'd always section off a part for the rival fans because they'd always come in buses and they'd usually be getting drunk as hell, high as hell, and coming to the game just real lit, ready to go. And so they come in and like we'd be warming up and you hear them just coming in with drums and stuff, chanting. <laughs> Guys got their shirts off, especially great. in I bet you this one in the playoff game, it's June, it's hot. I'm sure they're they're just there just trying to make trouble pretty much. So they put the riot police on either side and trying to box them in, keep them away from the other fans. Cause they call them like the ultras. Like, yeah. you know, in football they're even more crazy, I feel. But yeah, they used to go. They keep it. an they keep a massive gap of seats, right? So they can't get because they try to get to each other eventually. Yeah, don't they? they try like usually like <laughs> yeah. the ultras will be this end, and then our other ultras will be the other end. So they can't think. But they start singing at each other, you know, swearing, and then they usually try and meet up in the car park afterwards. Like their buses, like the ones that the opposition fans come in, they come in and like escorted as well. They have usually have a couple of police cars with them to stop them getting messed up. You know, <laughs> it's it's pretty full on, but it. it Creates an air of you know like uncertainty about it. it makes you makes you appreciate the game. How passionate it is. Yeah, the closest I experienced to that was the Athens Olympics, where we fucking happened to manage to draw Greece yes, in Athens for the true. opening yeah, game of the Olympics. That was crazy, right? That's bullshit. And getting spat at and getting <laughs> yeah. run out of the tunnel. That was my first experience, like in real Europe. I did college, where it's like it's abusive in college and it's more creative, like heckling. College is more they'll make a sign of yeah, like hang yeah. shit about a kangaroo. Like it's just yes. you're just like, oh yeah, well, who gives a fuck? But that was like They used to call me Kangarino di Merda in, in, in Italy, the the opposition team forty two, which means kangaroo shitty kangaroo or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight <laughs> but, away, yeah. Gotcha. Straight, kangaroo puns, but that's yeah, yeah, Europe was but man, that was a whole nother deal. And I was like, This is it'd be great to play in front of, but it's it's hard to play against um sometimes where they where they're just they're yeah. pretty intimidating and you got shit getting thrown at you. Oh, yeah. So, there was one game I remember in Italy, just because they're coming to me now, the, in Cantu, I remember, and the fans, the ultras were sitting behind the basket. So, you can imagine like we were down a little bit and they were up, up behind yeah, the yeah. basket. And uh, so, we're playing in fourth quarter. We're up by like four or five points or something. It's a close game. We should we should have been up by like 15. And then I'm shooting free throws. And the fans, like these guys are jumping on the bloody support of the basket. So the basket is going up and down <laughs> and the ref's giving me the ball and I get the ball and I'm looking at the ring and it's going up and down. I'm like, ref, what the fuck? He looks at me like, eh, what you want me to do? <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> so I'm shooting at this bloody thing. I actually make one of two and we were still up by like five. We end up winning. But I was like, what the hell? Where in the world could you – like these fans are just literally jumping up and down, screaming names at me, you know. Just same, moving the basket. Yeah, moving the basket. I'm like, ref, can't you see the basket's moving? You need to get them out. So – but no, nah, they're, they're crazy, the fans over there and stuff like that. It's just – it's a different thing, but it creates fun. I mean, it makes you more – Yeah, good atmosphere. Passionate. Yeah. Concentrated, and then go. I guess going on from Europe, I read some comments that you made previously. Yeah, you then an NBA, NBA was always a dream of yours as a kid. Yeah, definitely. And like you know, everyone you would have experienced growing up, you wanted to be an NBA star. I mean, that's not really. See, I was the opposite. I thought I thought it was like a unicorn. I thought it was like this pipe. too far. I thought it was like a fan, like great, like I'm yeah. at, at home. Oh yeah, I'd love to be in the NBA, but like, I didn't think it was realistic for me. I thought yeah. like if someone pays me money in the NBL. I'm fucking happy, right? So I didn't really think it was an achievable dream, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, no, that's oh, well the same. My like, I've always told my stories. I just kept raising the bar. I never thought I'd be a pro. Never thought I'd go to college, or never yeah. thought I'd do these things, and just kind of kept going. But uh, but but I guess that time came in what was it, 2009? Yeah, 
and you were in that unique situation, similar to probably Jock Landale right now, he'd be the current guy where you had to essentially leave money on the table to, to you to know, take that sign. experience. Well, yeah, I was balling back then. So, I don't know if you know the full story. Like, I got drafted by Atlanta back in 02 when I was 22. That's the eligibility then. And uh, drafted in the second round, so they held my rights. But then I started really balling in 04, the year of the Olympics. I started balling signing bigger deals. I signed a huge deal in Seska. Um, Ended up staying there for four years, but and everyone was talking. There was always talk about me maybe going to NBA, especially after that first season. But I was like, oh, you know, I'm earning big money. I'm going to take a pay cut. I have to wait to what is it? Um, the veterans camp yeah, in September, over. October, and I'm like, can't all the leave deals, that money on the table. Yeah, yeah, I can't leave, and then I'm not guaranteed anything. I might get an NBA minimum, which would be taking like a couple million dollar pay cut, and I was like, oh no, screw this. I'm I'm just going to ball out and do my thing and I'm enjoying this and winning yeah. with Seska. So, it wasn't until Barcelona playing at that really high level for five years and winning a lot and then my agent, Leon, worked some magic and got the Houston Rockets on board to sign like a three-year thing with a trade with Atlanta and stuff like that. And it wasn't a huge, I mean, it was still a pay cut. I still probably took a million dollars off my salary just yeah. to go play NBA, which is usually the other way around. You think NBA, you think you're getting paid to play in NBA. So, but it was a dream of mine, like growing up, and I always see other players, and you wanted to aspire to it. And I didn't want to leave, you know, no box unchecked. So I was like, no, nah, I'm pretty comfortable financially. I've invested a lot of money, and I've done really good. So I was like, no, nah, I'll take this punt and go over to America and see if I can make it. So. Yeah, yeah, and it's a sliding door moment, similar to Jock. Jock was getting massive offers from from Turkey from and a few and other stuff. clubs, yeah. and all in all, he's got a one year guarantee with a partial in his second, and he's potentially leaving a million euro on a million USD, mm. um, which would be tax free as well. It's true, exactly um, on the table. So that I mean, it's for people out there. You got to it's a sliding door moment where sometimes you have to give it up to to have that experience. How, how did you? You were only in the NBA for a couple of years or three years. Yep. Um, how was that experience for you? I mean, what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about your game? Talk us through it. It was great. I mean, you know, obviously I went to Houston. I was uh, kind of replacing Yao Ming, you know, as because uh, he was injured. He had a bad foot. And so, we we're trying to help out in that regard. I mean, totally different kind of player as well. So, but it was it was good, you know, coming from Europe and you go to an NBA and it's like, you know, they look after the players really well. Europe's a bit more of a dictatorship. The coach dictates when you eat as a team, you got to do this, got to do that. There's no like thing. NBA is all on you pretty much. Much. Yeah, and I was cool. And the funny one was going to the rookie camps and stuff like that. And I was 29 years old. I've <laughs> earned a boatload of money. I've invested it. I'm probably more mature than any of these other guys in the room. And here we are hearing about groupies and and how you got to worry about girls and stuff. And I'm like, well, I kind of got my misses already. I'm already sore. I don't need to hear all this crap. But and they're telling you about investing in property. Don't do this, da da da. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So that was three days wasted of my life when I went to New Jersey <laughs> for that. But after that, getting to Houston and, and meeting my new teammates, like I had a guy, Louis Scola, who was an international Argentinian, great, the don of Argentinian basketball. Um, Shane Battier was another real good teammate of mine. So I played with these guys and then Chase, we'd always go out and eat on the road and, and it was good. The team, you know, I was quite well, we clicked really pretty well and, you know, but the NBA is such a, it's such a business or such a beast. It just, you play every game and I remember, in Europe, you'd have a big game and you can kind of milk it for like, you know, 
a week or two, you'd be like, yeah, I'm good. You know, I kind of don't need to be too concentrated in the next one. NBA, you play one good game and it's like, you're feeling on top of the world. You want to talk to people about it. You're like, shit, I just got 17 points or whatever. I remember. And then it was like, you get on the team bus and everyone's already t- talking about the next game yeah. tomorrow night. And it's just like, shit, like, you know, you really don't celebrate it too much. You kind of monotone. And I realized that's what the NBA is a bit like. You just got to keep at a steady pace and and go about work and you have a big game this night and then the next night you're playing against another huge name so you're like wow you know it just kind of it's a hard league to to succeed in and i take my hat off to those guys as superstars who play 35 minutes a game night in night out i don't know how they do that so for me it was a bit of an adjustment and i thought i did pretty good but you know obviously got swallowed up in that trade stuff and things like that yeah and that's probably that that's your point of um you, know, you can never get too high or too low in, in an NBA season, right? It's so tough, man, like for players in your situation because here you are 29. You know, you've done a lot already on the international scene. You've, you're a seasoned pro in that end, but you're still trying to get your NBA legs together mm-hmm. and to sort of figure some things out. And like you said, you, you can't go through that. You can't get too high or too low because you've got to survive every day. And yep. you got to na- make a name for yourself a little bit, and you know it's a yeah, it it's was a different hard. situation I mean, we've had. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was hard, you know, learning it and just adjusting to that whole thing. And you get the rookie treatment too, because you're like from the refs, like you, you get a couple of rough calls, and you know you're going up against superstars every other night, and they scout you a lot better probably, and they're, they're understanding your tendencies as you get going. But but yeah, I had my moments. And did I you get rookie hazed? Rookie Hayes. Do they, do they have oh, you I had to do, you can, oh, you, you probably YouTube my eyes, the, the dodgy Houston Rockets dancing. They, they made us doing like 29 year of, old. Yeah. What was it? 12 year pro at the time. Oh, mate, it was crazy. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? So we're, you know, doing dancing and, and even like, oh, we did have to sing the national anthem in front of like our, what do you call it? High corporate sponsors. And then, like I said, the dance off in front of all the fans, like 5,000 fans and stuff like that. But it wasn't too much. We didn't, like, get popcorn in my car or any crazy shit like that. I mean, it was yeah, it was pretty low-key for me. There was a couple other younger rookies as well, so they, they, they kind of copped, copped a bit more. So, but, but, yeah, it was an adjustment, but it was fun, and it was great. You know, NBA lifestyle is awesome. Like, you know, you're flying around things. It's kind of real – it's all – happens really fast for, me, for you so you kind of just got to take a deep breath at times and you know get your legs under you because it, it just um you can get swallowed up pretty quickly but uh, i really enjoyed it and it, it definitely grew me as a player as well learning the three-point line as well the nba three that was far, far compared to europe back then it was yeah. another it was another bit so but i adjusted to that pretty quickly what you got bro the day-to-day david you know dealing with that and not really you know because you what you were on one year deals, David? Is that your was that so your deal? My original or one did- was a two plus one with Houston. So I was thinking I was going to be there three years. <laughs> Dumbass <laughs> David was here. Yeah, sure. Signed yeah. a deal for yeah. two plus one. So I'm thinking three year deal. Yep, I'm here for good. I even bought a house in Houston like that. Oh wow, did you? Yeah, yeah I thought I was there. I yeah. didn't know. And then then I came to find out that Houston is a wheel and dealing team. Daryl Morey like loves to wheel and deal, and I was like, oh, oh fuck yeah. So that actually, folks, David doesn't want to tell us this, but his first NBA jersey instead of Anderson on the back, it said player to be named later on his jersey. <laughs> probably right (laughs) yeah it's tough dude it's tough like i I did that i was director of player development with the dallas mavericks for six years i've dealt with development for a long time and it's hard man because especially if you if it's not 
tilted in your favor if you're not a lottery pick. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's hard enough if you're a late first round, late first round pick. Now you're talking about a twenty, like to to sort of get your legs under you, get a real fair yeah. shot get at in. staying with a team. It's got to be fucking tough. You're 29. You've already made great money, and what is it? You know, probably won 27 championships before then. Yeah, like it's tough. Like it must have been tough for you. Yeah, man. it was so- hard just to get in the rotation. I was kind of fortunate because Yao was out, so that left a big gap for minutes to be played. And and I thought I, I had big moments too. I remember one in LA when we beat the Lakers in LA, and I played a really good game. I had like 17 points and eight boards or something. And, you know, like I said, we got the big win. Um, so there was moments where I was good and stuff, but the, the consistency of the NBA was probably the thing that I struggled with the most is like, you know, just being able to back up and do things like that because I'm more of like a big game, you know, player where, and then I'd have my moments, you know, in the next few games and I'd step up again kind of thing. So, but um, yeah, the NBA was a challenge and sticking in that rotation was hard. And then I got an injury in my back that year in about February, January, Feb. And I was, I had a really bad sciatica problem. So that kind of hindered me. Obviously, I didn't finish the season with the Rockets. And then I had to do a lot of rehab over that off season. And that's when they'd made, they acquired Patterson uh, from the draft. Yeah. And then I got kind of, they told me you could come back and try and earn your way in rotation, but I don't foresee. <laughs> Like, you'll get your money, basically, they said, because I was like, oh, you better pay me. And they were like, no, no, you'll get your money regardless. But if your agent can find something better, maybe Go. pursue it. So so that's when I went to Toronto and um, settled in with them for a little stint. Was that with Bar- Bargnani there? Bargnani was there, yeah. yes, he was there. Yeah. He was our starting big guy. So, yeah, yeah, he was there. So the Italian connection, Calderone, I remember he was another international. Yeah, then we had um, Bosch. No. Boss wasn't there. No, no. Oh, he, he just left, left Miami. Yeah, we had a couple. Yeah. So. Super team, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, we had um, – who else was DeMar DeRozan was there. Oh, okay. Sonny yeah. Weems. Carl Lowry was there. So, She's yeah. She's solid. That was a start. No, Carl really. Lowry was in Houston, sorry. Then okay. he came up came later. Over, yeah. I'm trying to think. Who was it? Jared Jack. Yeah, Jared Jack was there because I got traded with him down yeah. in New Orleans. Folks, it's funny. Um, and internationally, everywhere he went, he won. In the NBA, everywhere he went, the superstar went out of town. So, you know, he had a sort of reverse effect when he got to the States. Yeah. <laughs> he chased Yao Ming out of town, chased Chris Bosh out of town. It's pretty fucking good, man. Chris Paul? It's yeah. good. It's- Chris Paul, nah, he was, uh, uh, he was almost, solid. Yeah. A couple of years later, he had enough no, of you, so he left. Yeah, nah. He was <laughs> yeah. actually all right. I yeah. like playing with Chris. He was a good guy to play with, but yeah. Yeah. Nah, the, um, it, was, it was fun, but like I said, the NBA was cool. But the, the bad side, the reason why I had to leave or left the NBA – a lot of people might not know this is because we went into lockout that year. It was 2011. That's right, yep. NBA yeah. NBA went into lockout. 2011, yeah. And they didn't know what was going on. And I was like, oh, shit, you know, here. And then for me, I was 31 and the London Olympics were coming around 2012. And I was like, man, I want to be performing well for them and stuff like that. I don't want to, you know, think so. I was, and I didn't know. New Orleans didn't really want me. I you had my, an option at that point, right? There was an option on the table. So, yeah. so I was like, listen, I'm the – the lockout went until January that year, I think it was. Like, it, it went yeah, on a it while. Yeah, it Janu- uh, went until December 6th, I think, was the first day back. Yeah, yeah I remember yeah, it, yeah. it went on for a while. So, in my mind, and I had, like, this big offer from Siena again to go back, and I was going to start earning big money again, more money than was in the NBA. So, I was like, all right, cool, I'm going to go back to Europe. I know I'll play. I know I'll, you know, I know what I'm doing. Find your rhythm again. Siena wanted to, they had ambitions to win the whole EuroLeague again. So we were like gunning for it and everything. They laid out a lot of money. So yeah, I kind of said, okay, I'm going to go back there and, and try and apply my trade there. And hopefully I'll get a, 
re-offered once the NBA kicks back up again. So, so I went back to Europe and then London Olympics came around and I started, you know, I did really well there, but then Siena <laughs> went bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of screwed yeah. me, but then I got trained. It's owned by a bank, right? They were owned by, yeah, Montepaschi di Siena. It's a bank. Yeah. So we had the thing and the- Financial crisis. The, the president and his wife were in close with them and then they sold out to some other big financial firm and there was all discrepancies in the in the payout and, yeah, it was it was a pretty uh, scary time. So they kind of, you know, on the down low said, listen, we know you've got two more years on your deal, but we really don't have the money to pay you. <laughs> So we He's highly we, we highly recommend that you yeah. <laughs> and your agent try and Find something else. get something else. And I was kind of like, oh fuck, you know, I'm maybe on my high horse. I was like, nah, you owe me. I want to stay. I don't want to move again. Da da da. I've just been moving three years in a row or four years in a row. And I was like, nah, I'm gonna stay. Da da. And then they'll, so now I went to the London Olympics and I still had this contract with Siena. And I played pretty good because, unfortunately, you weren't there. Yeah. But I was starting center. Bainsey was coming along then, but yeah. I was starting center. So, you know, and I played pretty well, and I was hoping to get another opportunity in the NBA, whether it be Vets Camp or Vinamon or something yeah. like that. But nothing actually eventuated, and then Fenerbahce offered me my contract from Siena to buy it out and all that. So so I ended up going across to Turkey instead, which was, it was a good move. I mean, same kind of thing. They wanted to win, and... Pump things up Super a bit. Team, yeah. yeah, so it was fun, but but yeah, the journey was hard. You know, going from the NBA back to Europe, obviously, it wasn't all roses. I mean, yeah, my <laughs> my wife didn't like it as much either. She appreciated the NBA life. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> it's much. a lot more nicer over there. And then you go back to Europe and you, you're squabbling with your team about you know the sink doesn't work or something <laughs> like this, <laughs> and it's like you know they're not listening to your wife when she says this doesn't work. So it's like yeah, every little thing's a pain in the ass for them. Whereas NBA, they you go you get treated, you need shit done, you get it done. So yeah, but um, yeah, it was. It was fun. I really enjoyed my time in the NBA. Made some good relationships and, and obviously some good networks as well. So any money stories, Dave David, as far as like in the, in Europe, like crazy money stories as far as not getting paid, having to chase guys down. Well you Well, well Montipaski still owe me probably about two hundred thousand euros. So if you want to go pursue some off President Fernando Minucci, he, you can go ask him because yeah, no, nah, I've lost a lot. There's I mean I actually tell this to the young guys when they when they ask me about going to Europe and stuff. I say, yeah, it's a risk. Like, you know, you might not get all your money, but at the end of the day, you'll probably end up with more in your pocket even if you come back with half your money. So, so That's yeah. the thing. The paper, the, there's the paper contract and then you got to kind of- Yeah, you got to wheel and deal and- Mentally think I'm not going to get all that. Well, right? yeah, exactly. And, it, and a lot fluctuates on performance. So, luckily, <laughs> I was winning a lot. So, I was getting a lot of things. And even when we were winning, sometimes you wouldn't get into bloody paychecks. You'd be like, where's the bonus? It's supposed to come. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. You're like, bro, we just won the Jerry. You should be happy. You should be paying it straight away. They're like, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. But yeah, no, nah, the teams are like that. Like, I know Bologna lost a bit of money there when they went full bankrupt. When I was in Greece, they told me the first words out of anyone who's born in Greece is tomorrow, meaning Avril. I'll pay you tomorrow. Avril. 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 Yeah. tomorrow. I'll tomorrow. pay you tomorrow. Yeah, that's uh, Italian for domani, domani. Yeah, they said a great story though. I forgot what team it was, but they owed players a shitload of money and they said they weren't going to practice. I said, all right, we'll pay you, we'll pay you. So they brought them down. They, they, they do this all the time. They paid the players before practice. So, of course, where the fuck are you going to put your money? They put it in the locker. So, they sent somebody from the team down to steal all the fucking money out of their lockers. Oh, that's once dope, they fucking paid them. <laughs> Shit, I'm, I'm taking that bag of money. I'm going home. I'm putting it like, you know, yeah. I'm training with my yeah. socks strapped to my body or something. <laughs> 
Yeah. You're swallowing it in a con. You're swallowing it in a condom like you're fucking smuggling drugs through the fucking through the, over the over the fucking border. Yeah, but yeah, nah. that's I was different. That's yeah, you, a Greek style. I know I've heard from other teammates. I won't mention names because I don't want to put them in trouble. But yeah, tomorrow, but yeah, they have tomorrow. to like you know the cash payments coming through. Like you know you got to sleep with it under your pillow. You're worried with a baseball bat kind of thing. Like fortunately, a lot of my teams they were pretty good, and so you def- didn't have to worry too much about the you know the cash payments. And the problem with Europe, the process to even appear not being paid is is used it, oh, it's, it's gotten long. a bit better with FIBA but it was it's it goes through a court tribunal pro I'm not sure yeah. if you're aware and then then it can take yeah, years yeah. upon years you got to pay you three to pay. five years they say is a turnaround if you appeal them like you know you might win you know da 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 you don't know and so. then if it gets close to being unfavorable for the team they then end up just paying you but it's been four or five years fighting the fucking shit yeah. and they, they know Lawyers. most players. Most players are going to be in, in a different country or back in the US or Australia. They're not going to fight it. So, exactly. they, they just got away with it for decades. Yeah, definitely. Like back in my days, I remember, yeah, there was some offers on the table from Greece before and then like my agent was like, listen, if you do go to Greece, we're going to set up a, you know, a trusted account where they've put the money already in there <laughs> and you withdraw it every month yeah. for this thing. So, they can't, you know- just screw you. you it'll be there yeah. like you know because he was like thinking we will knew they weren't going to pay even when i went to russia i was worried like you know wasn't going to get my money and stuff big but, club though but it was seska was a massive club it was like yeah. an nba team i yeah. realized that when i got there but, yeah seska's the best but Seska's before i got there i was like oh i don't know like russia everyone was you know cold war stuff everyone's like oh russia 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 and i was like i was like a pioneer too like no other aussies had been a lot of the europeans hadn't been so I went over there in what was it oh four oh five and signed a big deal and and I was like you know it was cool I was got up more of my money and like you know they offered me more the next year and and that that's when Messina came over from Italy and a couple of my teammates from that Kinder Bologna era came over and we kind of made a new click there and we you know we're in Euroleagues and stuff so but yeah the money definitely in Europe is it's harder to come by like it's not like NBA NBA you get your check it's every month yeah. it's guaranteed especially if you get hurt too in Europe that's the other yeah. thing yeah oh, yeah you get hurt in Europe you, you probably didn't have any situations where you got hurt and you got no I did well that was one time in Italy uh, that was before the Athens it was a year before I think we would have met uh, I did my shoulder it was 2002-2003 season so I'd dislocated my shoulder. I was playing with a dislocated, or what they call it, subluxation of the back where it'd pop in and out in the game. If I go up for a hard layup or a dunk or something, if someone smacked down on it, it would pop out and I'd be like in oodles of pain and have to stop. Carried it for like a year and a half. And then happened in, the, what was it, Christmas time that year, 2002, popped out again. The doctor's like, no, you need to do surgery. Your ligament's too far. So I got it repaired, surgery in Italy, Went back home for a bit, came back, was rehabbing all the thing. And that was the year that the team actually went bankrupt in Bologna. And guys weren't getting paid from December or November. So, no one was getting checks and everyone was seeing. And the, and the old Domani or tomorrow thing was coming into full effect like this. They sacked the coach. They changed the thing. They were doing all this crazy stuff. And I was actually injured. So, I was thinking to myself, shit, I ain't going to get nothing of this. <laughs> like, you know, I was just like, fuck, this is a disaster. And I had two more years on my deal with bigger money. So- Long story short, I basically got 30% of my year's salary that year. Signed for in Siena in the summer of 2003, right three or a month or so before the season started because I was like still had a contract with Beatus and they weren't officially bankrupt yet. They were going to second division or something like this. So I was like, oh, God, I didn't want to give up all the money. And they were like, oh, we won't be able to pay you that amount. But did it. And then Sienna came to the party and said, listen, I'll, we'll pay you this amount, which is still a lot less, half what I should have yeah. been getting paid. 
and ended up signing with them, knowing that they were trying to go to Euroleague. They were in Euroleague. They were trying to make Final Four and build and, and win the championship. And luckily, I took the pay cut, and I was probably the most highest-paid performing player. I mean, Lost. underpaid yeah, <laughs> performing player for them. And um, it, it worked out well because then I signed a huge deal with Ciesco. Mm. So, and, um, yeah, it was one of those things. You, Europe is like that. You just yeah, gotta- it's just hard like to plan for a um, if you had a mortgage in Australia, oh, or yeah, you just, no, you would you wouldn't plan. want to bet your money on nah. stuff like that. You just got to kind of yeah roll with it and deal with it, and yeah, it is what it is. Just to wrap up, what what was the out of your whole career from nineteen ninety five Frankston Blues Juniors to you know most recently Melbourne United? What was the most fulfilling part? And it doesn't have to be money wise. Doesn't have to be just the most fulfilling, enjoyable part of your career. Um, out of those last 20 years enjoyable I mean you obviously when you look at it the the Olympic stuff always stands out I mean that's always great from my stand but that uh, on a professional side probably I mean I really loved Italy so winning that triple crown as a youngster you know with the guys like Ginobili and all them I always remember that I'll remember that that was amazing time for me to win those kind of things but it's hard to pinpoint one exact thing. I mean, give me an example. Like for me, um, I haven't really spoken about this a whole lot. It would have been before I turned professional. So it would have been like AIS college for me was the most purest form of basketball because money wasn't involved. There wasn't mm-hmm. all the hidden. So it just felt hidden like agendas and just stuff. felt like it was just like it was just pure basketball where you're just going out to play basketball. You're not thinking about marketing and sponsorships and yeah, all that I kind of you. stuff. So it just felt. Kind of, which is kind of national team issue yeah. in a way. It's a well, thought. that's where the national team for me exactly. was kind of like that because well, you didn't get paid or you didn't get You're nothing. Not playing to get some, paid. Shit, some guys even paid to play. So yeah. it's like full, true love of the game and the brotherhood that comes with it was amazing for me. But, but yeah, I mean, for me, a lot of the steps along the way were great brothers. Like I said, I was fortunate. I've met good teammates all along the way. But yeah, going back like basketball. You fall in love with it at a young age. I remember the battles with my brothers out the front of my yard in, in Frankston. You know, those are the ones where I fell in love with the game and got the passion about it and stuff like that. But then, yeah, playing with the junior national teams, those ones always reflect, you know, in my reflections too, like, you know, where you're growing as a player and you're starting to get better and better playing against at the Schweizer tournament, being the MVP of that and being a pivotal part against the guys like Gazzol, you know, I was like, when I look back and I go, geez, yeah, I actually was pretty good as a junior. I didn't, in my mind back then, I didn't think I was going to be a star. I didn't think I was being anything. But I was like, now when I look back, I go, oh, yeah, that was pretty cool. And then, then probably the biggest one was the step going to the NBA. I reckon that, that was one of the ones when I checked that box, that kind of like fulfilled me a lot. Cause I'd won a lot in Europe. I've won Euro leagues. I was financially sound. Like I said, I didn't do it. It wasn't a financial decision for me. I kind of, it was, if anything, it was detrimental in that. I went against a lot of other people's recommendations. Like, you know, my, my dad probably was like, oh, you could sign a bigger deal. Why are you going to take less money? Like, you know, and I was like, nah, I need to check this box. And it kind of was in my mind. I was like, nah, I need to go do this. And, and I went over there and I had the opportunity and I played a bit. You know, obviously I would have loved to have been there for, Five or ten years, or retiring and not doing it would have just killed you, right? Like if you had, oh, yeah, I think so. True, like like that's and that would be my advice to Jock too. Like you know, go for it because this one you don't want to, you don't want to leave no stone unturned in my eyes. So so I had to give it a shot, and that was fulfilling to go over there and have some decent game. I'm like big games in my eyes. You know, I was like, yeah, this oh, is- you step foot on an NBA court yeah. regardless of of when and how it doesn't matter. I mean, there's only a unique, it's a unique club yeah. now, and it's getting bigger and bigger. But 
Mm. There's only 15, 20-odd guys that, that can say that, that yeah. have, you know, and you actually played in, in games that were vital minutes, weren't yeah. just, you know. That's where you feel like, like that one, that's where it stands out to me, like that Lakers game where we won there, it was Kobe, it was all, I think it was like the big nuts. So it was a... It was one of those moments you go, well, yes, this is what I aspired to as a kid. I remember writing it on my wall as a kid, like one day I'll play in the NBA and, you know, just as what kids do, graffitiing the wall kind of thing. And then to think of that, that I can still see it written on my wall now when I reflect and I go, shit, I actually did achieve that and that was the greatest, you know, sense of accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. And just to finish on a down, what was the toughest part of that 20 years? What was something that stands out about? Did you have any – um, I guess years or moments where you, you know, wanted to give up or through injuries or just had had enough. You know, I got I got yes. homesick at times, so sometimes yeah. I was like, "Fuck, I just want to go home." Oh, for two there's months. definitely a homesick time. Uh, but yeah. did you have any any years that stood out where you were, were turning points where you really, you know, because everyone thinks it's twenty year career, everything was great and easy, and David Anderson's winning twenty three cups and comes back to the NBL, made a lot of money. Or it's just he's, he's living life in the fast lane. But there's there's moments for all of us, years, sometimes months, rehab whatever it is that, that hit us between the eyes. I mean, can you give us an example right. of one of those? Definitely. I mean, there's there's a few. I mean, over my career, I've suffered oh, multiple really bad injuries. Probably the one that sticks out most to me is I, well, I pretty much I broke my ankle on Australia Day in Real Madrid with the Seska Moscow. I was there. We were playing on the road, EuroLeague battle, and I totally snapped my foot got pushed back down on by two other guys and and it was a one of those moments i just knew it was bad like you i, I thought i did my knee at the same time but that's how bad it was had to fly back to moscow got the scan i couldn't even mri because it was that swollen just a ct scan it showed two clear snaps and i was like no you're done like you know this could be well they didn't tell me at the time career ending a lot of people thought it might be like in the staff and seska and that but they never told me this but but, yeah, that was a real downer. I mean, you sit down and you think, you know, those kind of injuries, I'm sure you've had a few too. You kind of sit down and you think, oh, shit, this is what I, this is what I do. And now it's going to be taken away from me in it, like that. And you kind of like sit there and you go, fuck. Like, you know, I remember seeing the scan. I knew it was bad, so I kind of was already prepared. But you kind of sit yourself, oh, fuck, like what am I going to do? And and that's where the support factor comes in. You know, i got great family, great people around me that help me got me back on the track you know i came back to australia so i had to fly pretty much around the world with a broken ankle to get back to australia to have the surgery in melbourne because yeah. it, was, it was regarded as like a afl footy injury yeah. so snapping my foot like that so i remember coming in david young patched me up put some metal in my foot got it all right and short story you know basically rehabbed the crap out of it used my trainers and everyone pool guys got back on court and i was back playing after about nine nine ten months but the flatness that comes along, you know, the battles, you know, trying to get that back on is, it's hard. It's like, you know, you just, every day is a fight, you know, just to try and get it right. And you kind of, you know, it squanders your, your ambition. You, it well, makes you, takes your motivation. The long term injuries are a bitch because they take, you can do the same shit every day for a month and really see maybe two degrees of better extension yeah. in your ankle and you're like, <laughs> what the fuck? Like, <laughs> how is this no going to go better? But then I yeah. had the great support around me, Bowden Babacek, my, my trainer, athletics yeah. guy. He was always like, mate, just you stick with it. Watch, you'll go, you'll stick to this level for like uh, three weeks, like you say, and then all of a sudden it'll go boom. But you don't need to try and push it because otherwise it would be. So having this good support around me definitely helped and and made it easier on me. And and I came back off this injury and I was, I was performing at a high level within a year or so. So those are good. But those moments, 
coupled with obviously the homesickness, like, you know, being overseas in Europe, it's a lot lonelier there probably now. I mean, back then because we didn't have FaceTime, we didn't have all this, which is probably not a bad thing either because I didn't know about Australia. Like, like if you're playing in Europe now and you're looking on your Instagram and you're seeing all these guys having fun in the sun in, yeah, it's in an Australia. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you think it'd help with it's, homesickness. But it won't. I reckon it's the worst. Probably the opposite, right? Exactly. So, I didn't have, like, I, I wasn't talking to mates on the phone every two seconds. Yeah. I was just in my own little bubble over in Europe with my brother. So, but there was moments at night where you're like, what the fuck am I doing? I'm over here in a foreign speaking country, doing a thing after a bad game. You're like, what the fuck? You don't, you don't know what you're going to do, but, but you just kind of, you find it in, inside of you, your resilience, you know, your, your ambition. I wanted to play. I liked doing what I do and I, I just found comforts and things to keep me motivated and yeah. busy. Bro? Finish off with anything? Any grillings for old uh, GQ? <laughs> nah, I got no grillings for this dude, man. Yeah. Um, no, it, it was just, it was cool to see, You have such a weird sort of career based on what, like, like Boke said, like what most Australian players that played really well and had a great careers did. Like, usually they stayed in the NBL most of their careers. And then they maybe went to the NBA, maybe they didn't, but they didn't do the Europe thing for a long that long. And you had such a great run at the at the European, you know, at the international level. Then go to the NBA at an advanced age, being a second round pick. I mean, you were already a drafted guy, and then you go to the NBA and then you go back. It, it just you know twenty fucking years, man. Like yeah, it's twenty plus. I always tell everyone now. That's well, I'll what give him shit, I bro. I give him shit that the reason why he keeps playing, he's got he's got some kids at home that are young, young kids, and just doesn't want to go home to a full time dad yet. So he's he's forty one. You're forty one, right? Yeah, forty one. Still looking now. for a contract? Yeah, always. <laughs> <laughs> tell all those NBA teams out there, NBA teams, everyone. No, nah, no, nah, it's it's one of those things. I I enjoy the game. I mean, you fall in love with it. I'm yeah. sure Bogues is the same. Like you want to think, and it's just, it's hard to give it up. So you know, it is one of those things. They're starting a new pro league called the Mediocre Three. If you want to go in that, we could probably get you in. So it's not not necessarily the big three. It's more the mediocre three. Uh, we could probably you get go. you through that. Funny story, bro. They actually called. I actually got a message from them the other day. Um, I think they, it, I think it was really? two months ago. I said, "Yeah, one, if you got the if you got a wheelchair big three, I'm in. Otherwise, stop fucking messaging me." <laughs> <laughs> hey, who the fuck are you gonna guard, Michael Rappaport? Get the fuck out yeah, of here! Uh, and just that whole hype train behind it. Like, do they do they know do they know anything about me? Like, that's so no, not me. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know the three v no. three stuff, but yeah, it's the gonna be an Olympic things. sport now. Yeah, all right. Yeah, well, it's cool, Dave. We appreciate your time. That yeah, was good. Where to? What, what are you doing now? Anything you want to promote? Anything you want to give a shout out to? Feel free to. If not, we appreciate your time. Um, yes. I think it's a pretty cool message for our listeners to hear. Out of the, you know, usually hear from NBA players and, and all that kind of stuff, but hearing a, a different journey of a guy that's been real successful. One thing I will say around your injuries and that. You're one of the most most utmost professional guys I've been around. Um, Thanks, brother. You were, a, you know, a guy that was always getting in the extra work. I remember the Olympic Village. You'd always be going to the Olympic weight room, gym. Yeah, stretching and foam yeah. rolling, and you not lifting. It. You weren't a hardcore lifter, like weight wise, but just always maintaining your body and making sure you were ready for the next day's game or practice. And I think most guys that have played with you have learned a lot just from that. your professionalism. Even through a shitty game or a good game, you still were kind of the same every day and. That's hard to do um, over the journey of an Olympics or, or a season where you, you get frustrated with yourself and you're not playing well and you were always kind of that most professional with, with everything you did. Well, that gives you that level-headedness, I suppose. That's where I use that off-court stuff to keep me – because the highs and lows of basketball happen all the time. You're going to have good games, bad games. So you've got to have other things in play that keep you, you know, 
level-headed or monotone, sometimes I call it. So, yeah, I use the gym a lot just to keep me ticking along, keep me working, and, and obviously keep my body ticking along. I was never that physical presence, you know, probably not not as much as you. You got the big-ass, long-ass arms, you're taller, more jump high, all that kind of stuff. So I had to get crafty, and but definitely the gym stuff helped me and, and keeping that side of things working was great. But the only thing I like to say is like for the kids out there, you know, there's pathways, there's other ways to do things like, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, MBL or whatever it is, AIS, straight to college, straight to MBA. You can go different routes and hopefully they learn in the MBL now it's getting to a level where kids are going to be here and with local talent's going to stay here more and more and more. But but there is, there's a whole world of European basketball out there and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the cultural ride that I did along the ways. I enjoyed seeing all the different parts of the world and it's uh, it's it's eye-opening it's, and it's life-changing stuff. So for me... Just a little kid from Frankston, growing up, never thought there's things. I saw the world from basketball, and hopefully some other kids will do the same thing in the future. All right, pro, final word. I get nothing, brother. I get nothing. Hey, seriously, though, it was, it was fun talking to you. Um, you know, you're probably one of the you – know, you're young enough where you could continuously kick the shit out of me. So, with Andrew Gaze and those guys, I could fuck with them a little bit because they ain't going to – well, they'll probably still catch me. But I don't want to fuck with a guy that's, you know, once you get in your 50s, come back to us. I'll fuck with you a little bit more. But you could still, you know, choke the living shit out of me. So, I'm going to – I'll let this one slide for today. I'll get you, mate. Don't worry. I'll come and find you in Dallas, wherever you're at. <laughs> Appreciate you, brother. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Pro. Thanks, Dave. Good on you.